Max Jacobson was giving out these vitamin elixir shots, right? These special vitamin shots. <laughs> they were really 30 milligrams to 40 milligrams of methamphetamine, which made you feel great until you hit the wall and needed another shot, and then you fell into this unbelievable depression. So that's what Max Jacobson did. Ladies and gentlemen, He convinced himself at a certain point that because the drug was, I mean, he actually said, do I want to be called Dr. Feel Bad? No, I want to be called Dr. Feel Good. That's what I make people. I make them feel good. So he saw himself delusional on this mission to make people feel good. That's how serious this was in 1962, all brought to that point by a drugged-out Kennedy who couldn't stand up to Khrushchev, who believed that Kennedy could be rolled over like some bum in the street. Right. That's Jacobson. So Gene Connor's a patient, Judy Exner Campbell's a patient, Peter Lawford's a patient, Sammy Davis Jr.'s a patient, Dean Morton's a patient, Frank Sinatra's a patient. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And it has been far too long since you've heard from me. I feel like I've been saying this at the beginning of the last several programs, so stay tuned to the end of the show for the big reveal of the BOA Audio Season 7 finale guest as well as some really big news about upcoming live editions of the program. That's the hook to get you to stick around till the very end of the show, but I know what you are tuning in for right now is this compelling conversation, which you are about to hear as we welcome a longtime friend of the program, Bill Burns, for a discussion on his new book, Dr. Feelgood, the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history by treating and drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and other prominent figures. Over the course of the next two-plus hours, we are going to learn all about the infamous Dr. Max Jacobson, who administered methamphetamine shots to some of the biggest Hollywood stars of the 1950s and 60s, as well as provided treatment for JFK during both his presidential campaign and presidency. We will dig deep into this amazing story as Bill shares a wealth of stunning anecdotes about the unseen influence of Dr. Feelgood on politics and pop culture. Additionally, we will spend the final third of the conversation in a jam session talking about the state of UFO research, disclosure, the citizens' hearing on disclosure, 
and where UFO research needs to go if it is going to unlock the enigma of unidentified flying objects. Altogether, it is a breathtaking edition of the program, which will have you looking at American history in a whole new light as we learn about Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson, with our friend Bill Burns. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Burns, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. William J. Burns is a New York Times bestselling author, a magazine publisher, and a New York literary publishing agent who has written and edited over 25 books and encyclopedias in the fields of human behavior, true crime, current affairs, history, psychology, business, computing, and the paranormal. Bill Burns is the publisher of the nationally distributed UFO magazine. He was the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia published by Pocket Books, and he was, of course, one of the stars of the History Channel's TV program, UFO Hunters. Bill Burns received his Ph.D. from New York University in 1974 while he was an instructor of English at Trenton State College in New Jersey, where he taught structural linguistics and historical linguistics, as well as literature and writing. Professor Burns was a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow, a Lilly Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Grants Award Judge for the National Endowment for the Arts. Along with his wife, he hosts the weekly podcast, Future Theater, which you can find at futuretheater.com. And you can find out more from Bill Burns at the website, www.ufomag.com. Pretty simple, all one word, ufomag.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 10th. 2013, Bill Burns, talking about Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson, on BOA Audio, Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio, Season 7. And as we head towards the close of this season, I wanted to bring back a longtime friend of the program, and he is the co-author of a fantastic new book, which I just finished this afternoon, and it is titled... Dr. Feelgood, the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history by treating and drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and other prominent figures. And he co-authored the book with Richard Lertzman. And, of course, I'm talking about our good friend. This may surprise people because it's so far outside of the realm that they have previously heard him on on this program. But, of course, he has authored numerous true crime-style books as well. I'm talking about our longtime friend, Bill Burns of UFO Hunters and UFO Magazine fame. And as I said, I absolutely love this book. It is riveting, and I've heard Bill on other programs talking about it, and I knew we had to get him on but all of America Audio because this is just right in our wheelhouse, this topic and this discussion. So I'm really excited about this and thrilled to be reconnecting with him here on Season 7. So welcome back to the program, Bill. Oh, thank you, Tim. My pleasure. I guess, you know, folks are, obviously, they know your bio, your background. You've been on the program a couple times now. I guess take us through sort of the, the background on the book. How did this come about, and, uh, you know, how did you end up being a part of Dr. Feelgood? Well, this book has really been kind of like eight years in the making. Um, <clears throat> when we were still in California, uh, and, and 
working on UFO Magazine. This is even before UFO Hunters started. Started in 19... I mean, UFO Hunters actually started in... 2006 is when we first assembled, and then in 2007 uh, we did the pilot. But um, all the way back in 2005, 2006, uh, Rick had called me. I had represented Dwayne Hickman. Dwayne Hickman was Dobie Gillis on the old Many Loves of Dobie Gillis show, the Max Schulman character, and I had, uh, and he was also in the movie Rally Around the Flag Boys, the Max Schulman movie. Uh, but he was also on a show called Love That Bob, <clears throat> the Bob Cummings show. Love That Bob was about this photographer, playboy, you know, young Bob Cummings, and folks who, who want to see the definitive Bob Cummings should look at the Alfred Hitchcock movie Saboteur, look at Dial M for Murder. He was one of Hitchcock's favorite characters, uh, character actors. But, and he was a big star, an A-list star in the 40s, and uh, he was in this great movie with Ronald Reagan, one of the big cult movies of the 40s called King's Road, in which he and Reagan climb into bed together. Really a weird scene. Anyway, that was Bob Cummings. Bob Cummings, from being A-list motion picture star, feature film star, A-list television star, had this precipitous, I mean, just a, a fall from great heights to where he was kind of wallowing around at a motion picture home for impoverished actors up in uh, the San Fernando Valley. Uh, and the reason was he was an addict. He was a methamphetamine addict. And how did he get that way? All the way back in the late 1950s, his agent, uh, well, one of the agents, Blanche Gaines, who was a big agent in Hollywood, represented Patty Chayefsky, Rod Serling, Reginald Rose, and these were all the great names of 1950s dramatic television, yeah. right? I mean, Patty Chayefsky, of course, went on to write one of the most definitive cult movies of all time, Network, <clears throat> back in the 70s, wrote Hospital, wrote The Americanization of Emily. So he, he was a very important, part, 12 Angry man, very important playwright. And <clears throat> that agent introduced all these people to this doctor um, in New York called Max Jacobson. And Max Jacobson was giving out these vitamin elixir shots, right? These special vitamin shots. Mm -hmm. They were really 30 milligrams to 40 milligrams of methamphetamine, which made you feel great until you hit the wall and needed another shot, and then you fell into this unbelievable depression. So that's what Max Jacobson did. That was his stock in trade. He was giving those shots. And basically, once you took it, methamphetamine is a, is a chemically habit-forming drug, okay? It's not like, oh, gee, you're a pothead. You can't go through a day without smoking pot. That's not at all like that. It is chemically habit-forming. What that means is the methamphetamine molecule, that, the shape of that molecule, human chemicals, chemicals in the human body where they hit nerve endings, yeah. this is all, uh, it's like there's a topography of chemicals in the human body. Yeah. Okay? It's the shape of certain molecules that hit certain receptors in the human body. Okay. Methamphetamine imitates dopamine. Yeah. And so as a result, when that is circulating through the bloodstream, it's taken up, it's called uptake, by receptors in the brain that generate 
that respond to pleasure. That's in the amygdala, in the, in the um, old animal part of the brain. And so as a result, an injection of methamphetamines stimulates dopamine flow, and dopamine is the feel-good neurochemical, right? And that hits the part of the brain that stimulates pleasure, and sure enough, people feel extraordinary pleasure. In higher doses, it's not just pleasure, it's a sense of invincibility. Uh, so it's hypergrandiosity, you become delusionally paranoid, hypersexual, you just want to have sex with everybody you see, uh, regardless of sex, of, of gender. And so the people who began receiving these methamphetamine injections had became uh, paranoid delusional but on the other hand the other side of the coin from paranoia uh, and and delusions of hypergrandiosity is clinical depression severe hopelessness and that's ultimately where you go with this drug and that's where Bob Cummings went to until he was useless at the end of his life he was impoverished divorced even this woman who was Milton Berle brought to take care of him uh, left him. Yeah, that was, was all sad. alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the girl so, from the Piggly Wiggly, right? Right, from the from the Piggly Wiggly in Tennessee. <laughs> but but what? So when Rick Lurspin came in, I want to write the biography of Robert Cummings, and so we talked about it. And how the reason he came to me with this originally was that he'd spoken to Dwayne Hickman. Dwayne was an eyewitness to Bob Cummings getting these uh, injections. Mm -hmm. In fact, when they were in New York, Cummings took a young Dwayne Hickman to Max Jacobs' office on the Upper East Side in the 70s and said, you want a shot? Max will give you a shot. He said, no, no, no. Dwayne was smart enough not to get hooked. So it was Dwayne who began telling the story to Rick Lertzman about Dr. Jacobson. And so when Rick was asking about more about Cummings, I had represented Dwayne Hickman's book, Forever Doby, that was published by Carroll Publishing. So Dwayne said, well, you know, why don't you talk to Bill Burns? Because Bill Burns is my agent, but Bill Burns' godfather was George Burns, who hired Bob Cummings and loved that Bob. Now, I have a whole show business background through my father and yeah. my mother. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, so Rick called me up, and we began talking about it. And in the conversation, I said, you know, that was the same doctor who got Jack Kennedy hooked on methamphetamines. That was one of the big scandals that came out after Kennedy, I mean, decades after Kennedy, was the Jacobson story. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, that's right. I said, well, with all the other stars involved, and this is a great story of Bob Cummings, but he's only part of the story. The real story is... <clears throat> all the people who were addicted. And Rick said, fine, we began to investigate. He called other people. We spoke to Eddie Fisher. We spoke to a lot of stars. And, I mean, the stories about Liz Taylor that didn't get in the book because they were too gross uh, would, blow, <laughs> would blow your mind because <laughs> it was Eddie Fisher that got her addicted, his, 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 his second wife. So Colonel Parker was an addict, and he got Elvis a shot. C.B. DeMille was an addict, and he got Charlton Heston a shot. So... We began talking, and, and as the information coalesced around the, the arc of the story, it was clear when we realized that Max Jacobson himself was addicted to his own medicine because Jacobson believed, as a lot of doctors did in the 1920s, by the way, you're going all the way back to the 1920s Berlin, which was really 
a hotbed of creativity. I mean, there was Einstein, there was Jung, there was Freud, um, there was uh, the, uh, this guy, uh, this great surgeon, Dr. Beer. I mean, it was really a, a hotbed of medical research, both psychiatric and, and um, internal medicine research. Well, one of the things that a lot of the young med students were doing, and this guy Jacobson, as a young guy, was advocating was you shouldn't be giving your patients any medication unless you tried the medication yourself. Fine. That runs contrary, by the way, to what the American Medical Association and Medical Licensing Boards say. They say you can't medicate yourself. Right. You go to another doctor, get medicated. So Max began injecting himself with this concoction of, of like blood serum and eel cells and sheep gonads and human placentas and stem cells. I mean, it was just a mess. They made him so sick that he synthesized a drug that had been in existence since the end of the 19th century, which was an amphetamine. He synthesized that drug, added it to his vitamin elixir, because the whole point was to inject a substance into the blood that could cure neuromuscular disease, like multiple sclerosis. Right. But the methamphetamines made you, they mask the fact that this drug was making you sick. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's the methamphetamines you wanted. You didn't care about the, sheep, the, uh, the sheep gonad. Right, right, right. Right? You care about the meth. <laughs> exactly. And that's what he did. And he became addicted to his own drug. And no. that's how this all began. So when we began researching, we realized this is a story about a drug. <clears throat> yes, it's about Max Jacobson. Yes, it's about JFK and all the movie stars and stuff. But at the core of the story is how this drug, let's say for argument's sake, right, talking about UFO conspiracies, yeah. let's say for argument's sake that this drug, once synthesized, acts like a life form. Okay, what does a life form want to do? It really does uh, three core things. It must find a host where it can live, just like human beings. We have a host on planet Earth. We want to go to the moon. We need a, a host environment, i.e. a spacesuit. So it must find a host where it can live and thrive. It needs to multiply. It needs to expand itself. <clears throat> human beings, you know, when we... For whatever reason, we got to planet Earth, whether we were brought here by an extraterrestrial, manipulated our DNA, whether the Bible or whatever, the, the, the um, sanction in the Bible, the admonition in the Bible is, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Well, we're in the midst on the east coast of the brood to cicada 17-year cycle. What do they do? They come out of the Earth. They copulate like crazy, they feed, and they die. Right. That's exactly what they do. They populate, they are fruitful, they multiply, and they die. And so the drug acts the same way. Um, not to sound really crazy, but look at how in the, 19, in the late 1940s we were seeded with computer technology. Right, digital technology. Britain and Shockley developed the transistor. We can go into that down that rabbit hole in um, 1947, 1948, and patented in 1949. Again, in 1950, as a consumer patent. And what have we done? 
how many times have you heard the story from someone, oh, the computer won't let me do it. The computer needs this information. The (laughs) computer needs this. Right? I mean, who's the boss? Really? (laughs) Who's the boss? You with a lousy computer. Sure enough, the computer, which ostensibly we created, think about this, we created this in our own image. It's got a hard drive, it's got a brain, it's got a central processor, right? Now it's telling us what to do. And that's how we're functioning. We become the drones of the computer. So this drug acted just like that. It infected Jacobson. Jacobson used that drug to infect others as he gradually spread his influence through show business, through the arts, and eventually uh, into politics. And that's how this drug circulated, and that was the point of the book. It was a snapshot over time of how what essentially became a new life form, but this was a trade book, and it's not a UFO book, so we couldn't get too wacky, but how it permeated society. And look what that drug did. Jacobson became nothing less than a serial killer, he was a Soviet agent. He was turned in Vienna in the 1930s. And um, that Soviet agent, spied on by the CIA, because Mark Shaw, the photographer who was Jacobson's patient, was a CIA non-official cover officer, this guy killed him, killed Mark Shaw, killed Cecil B. DeMille, uh, killed his own wife. Um, he literally was a serial killer. Um, anybody who challenged him got an overdose of drugs and died. Okay, that and kind this of, was Max oh, Jacobson. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, that, that was sort of like the, one of the first jumping-off points I wanted to talk about with you. Cause I, I couldn't really wrap my mind around how I felt about this guy, even as I finished the book, because he, he never really came across, except for the parts where it's sort of like veiled that maybe he went over the line to take some of these people out, but we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really ever sure if, if he was an evil person or just really misguided. Like if he really thought he was doing good for all these people, or if he was, or if he knew that he was just getting them hooked on on you know drugs. Well, well, Mike. Well, he knew he was getting them hooked on drugs. Yeah. That's first of all. So there was no um, innocent. Oh, gee, were you addicted from from uh, from his part? It was drugs. Yeah. But I think that if he had a benevolent aspect to him as a physician that was quickly overtaken by the drug itself, okay, yeah. which drove him to spread that drug around. I mean, there's a story that wasn't in the book, but there's a story that after he'd um, gotten Sam Giancana, the mobster, hooked on the drug, uh, Sam Giancana's girlfriend was Phyllis McGuire uh, from the McGuire sisters back in the 50s. And um, Max Jacobson, when Phyllis McGuire was on the old Ed Sullivan show, he was chasing her around backstage in the theater to give her a shot. That's how crazed this guy was. When Marilyn Monroe, uh, who was an addict, she, was, uh, she became a patient in the 1950s through Paula Strasberg, who was Lee Strasberg's wife, the actress studio. When um, she had to go on, she was not a live performer. She could only do movies. She had she had phenomenal stage play, uh, fright. She wouldn't go on. 
So he gave her a mammoth shot of methamphetamines, and that's why she's slurring her speech and is acting drunk. She's not drunk. She's almost stuporous from methamphetamines. When Jackie Kennedy didn't want to do the White House tour after Jack Kennedy became president, they wanted to do a tour of the White House. She refused. She said, I can't do it. I'm too afraid. She had stage fright. Max, she was already a patient of Max Jacobson. He was curing her for migraines after her um, miscarriage. And um, so he gave so he gave her a shot right before the show, and that's why she acts as stuporous as Marilyn Monroe in doing the White House tour. Right, right. So it's like it seems almost. I got the impression, and, and one of the overarching themes of the book is control. Oh yes, like he wanted the control over these over these people. I guess extrapolate on that. Cause like I was, I was sort of like, what what was the control? Just the power that he. Was the only one who could who could you know help quote unquote these people and he he kind of collected the prominent figures in a sense in his mind. Yeah, he was like the movie The Collector. One of the things that um, goes on is that you have these individuals who have control issues. It it really is kind of a. Um, I, I call it the serial killer syndrome. Even though you don't have to be a serial killer to suffer from it. Mm. Serial killers like a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer, um, the issue is not the murder itself, as odd as that sounds, they're serial killers, but the issue is the control they exercise over the victim. So for Bundy, um, who's a necrophile, he, killing was a means to control the victim. He'd go back and have sex with the body uh, that he buried. Same with Dahmer. Dahmer would drug someone, have sex with a drugged person, then cannibalize the body and wear parts of the body on him because it was his form of exercising control. It's 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 kind of a, <clears throat> I would say it's a psychiatric aberration, deep deep deviant uh, psychiatric yeah. aberration, except for the fact that it's part of a spectrum. And we did this in the books uh, Signature Killers with Bob Keppel. It's a spectrum in which, let's just say you've got a terribly bad boss who pops his ugly head into your, uh, or her ugly head, into your cubicle at work. And nothing you could do satisfies that boss. The boss's only happiness, or apparent happiness, is exercising control over you. Right, do right. this. You did it wrong. Now do it again. Now do it again. You're going to get fired because you can't do it right. And you're doing it 16 different times to satisfy this boss. It's not you. It's the boss's own need to control. And that's what turns the boss into a tyrant. Well, at the extreme violent end of the spectrum, that's a serial killer. Okay. It's yeah. about control. Jacobson was on that spectrum of exercising control. And on the one hand, he was a tool of the drug, which sought to exercise control over the host. And the drug was a tool of Jacobson, who was injecting it to exert his control over other people. Now, did any of these people, these celebrities and, and you know, any of the prominent figures did they actually believe that this was just a simple vitamin mix or were they kind of was it kind of like a wink wink nudge nudge that they knew that there was the methamphetamines in, involved in all two this? stories about that one came from bobby kennedy who bobby kennedy demanded 
he stole vials of the medicine that Jacobson had given to JFK. And he took it to the FBI for analysis. And the FBI analyzed it and said, you know, what's in this stuff this is methamphetamine. It's nothing more than uh, methamphetamines. Your, your brother's hooked. The president's hooked. Hence, the story got out among the FBI and the CIA that Kennedy was now a drug addict. So he knew. Kennedy knew. Because Bobby Kennedy told him, he said, you know, this is what you're taking. Look at this. This is what you're taking. And JFK said, I don't care if it's horse piss. It makes me feel good. The other person knew exactly what they were taking was the writer Rod Serling on Twilight Zone. <clears throat> One of the people we interviewed years ago, he died recently, was the script supervisor on Twilight Zone whose name was Del Reisman. Del Reisman, Bob Cummings, um, who was Jacobson patient, we talked about Cummings, was on Twilight Zone in 1960 in the episode King Nine Will Never Return or something. You know, it's a story. I'm sure you've all seen it in the Twilight Zone retrospectives of this B-24 Liberator bomber pilot who wakes up, and it's actually after the war, but he's having this hallucination about the plane that's lost in the desert, and it's a spooky thing about this lost plane. Well, when they were filming that episode in this god-awful place in Barstow, California. I mean, it's out in the desert. So Serling and Bob Cummings are at this diner. They're having dinner, right? <clears throat> Serling is smoking up cigarettes like a chin. He's just smoking away, right? Cummings was a health nut. I mean, he'd actually written a book in the 50s about how to stay fit forever, and it's all about vitamins and nutrition and vegetables and working out, because it was a bestseller in the 1950s. And Cummings takes out a bunch of pills and puts them on his plate. And Sterling goes, what the hell is that? And Cummings goes, well, that's my vegetable, that's my protein, that's my... And Sterling's meal comes, right? Huge steaks smothered in fat and onions and potatoes, and he's smoking cigarettes and drinking. And Cummings looks at Sterling and says, you know... You eat like that. You treat yourself like that. You're going to be dead by the time you're 50. Sure enough, he died when he was 50. But you ain't dead by the time you're 50. Serling says to Cummings, this is 1960 now. Serling says to Cummings, and, and the person at the dinner table is this guy, Del Reisman, the script supervisor for that show. Um, Serling says to Cummings, hey, we both go to the same doctor. You both know the shit that he's giving us. So don't tell me about treating yourself well. <laughs> right? They knew. Yeah. Now, it, I guess it should, we should note here now, this was illegal? Absolutely legal. Okay, that's what I was going to Methamphetamines yeah. in the 1950s and 60s up until the early 1970s was a completely legal drug. It had to be um, dispensed by prescription. Just like it is now. I mean, what do you think is in Ritalin? What do you think is in Adderall? What do you think is some diet drugs? It's methamphetamines. Yeah. But it was just uh, just more pervasive, I guess, in the raw form, if you will, kind of. It wasn't actually, it probably just hadn't been taken over by the... By the pharmaceutical companies, yet. Well, it had not. Yeah, well, it was in Nazi Germany. Uh, a pharmaceutical company, I forget the name of the company, I forget, it wasn't ibuprofen, I'd love, I'd love to blame them. But um, yeah, a company had taken over the drug from Max Jacobson, it was his formula, and was dispensing millions of capsules to Wehrmacht soldiers and the Luftwaffe. And the United States was dispensing it to our own pilots. And the British were dispensing it to RAF pilots. Because remember, 
absent jets, think of how long it would take to fly from north of London all the way to Schweinfurt or Frankfurt or Dresden or Berlin. Yeah, so it, it could be administered by a doctor. It wasn't like something that we're not talking about the the... the because when people hear meth now, they think of, like, hillbillies and bathtubs and that, the shit that's going on, that, that terrible sort of scourge. Right, meth happening. labs that blow yeah. up in your face. No, this was long before that, and this wasn't crystal meth. It wasn't rock, uh, uh, um, like a rock crystal meth. This was liquid methamphetamines. Okay. Yeah. And I was just amazed, too, reading the book, just how much this guy was bringing in, you know, at his height. Like, I think oh. they, they said they were like, you know, syringes, like thousands of syringes, 1,500 right. syringes a week. When he was investigated like by New York State, they were appalled at the, no, at the amount of instruments this guy had, at the amount of drugs he was making, at the number of instruments he had. They said, you couldn't possibly have this small a patient list and be dispensing that many drugs. And they were right. He was pushing drugs around the world. Absolutely, just crazy stuff. Just absolutely crazy stuff. And like I said, I still, I, having talked to you now and and having read the book, it, it definitely you get the picture of a guy who who was overcome by the drug itself. That he really, that he probably knew that this was a terrible thing to be doing, but it, but it, it you know, he was part of the disease, if you will. He convinced himself at a certain point. That because the drug was, I mean, he actually said, do I want to be called Dr. Feel Bad? No, I want to be called Dr. Feel Good. That's what I make people. I make them feel good. So he saw himself delusional on this mission to make people feel good. The repeated use of this stuff, it, it's not like, it, it, it'll really mess you up pretty bad, your body, right? Well, I mean, that's kind of what uh, James, John F. Jr. Kennedy Jr., yeah. John, F., uh, John John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy Jr. told us, he actually told C. David Heyman, uh, who got to us with this story, that uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. blamed Max Jacobson's methamphetamines for his mother's, Jackie's, um, terminal lymphoma, acute lymphoma. Right. So it's kind of like one of those things like that's akin to like steroids, where it's like, you know, it'll, it'll make you big and strong, but then, you know, your body will fall apart on the inside. And you're, you that's know, exactly your right. Fall apart. That's exactly right. Just absolutely madness. Now, obviously, this was known about by him and, and sort of like the medical community, but it, like, it, was it kind of like another thing where it's sort of like how in the 80s Coke was everywhere, but no one really talked about it kind of thing? It like, was. Like in the mainstream where people, people weren't like, oh, you know, celebrities are all secretly doing math or anything like that. Right? No, that was, it was, they didn't talk about it, but they did it. I mean, and this goes back to the 19, I want to say 1930s in Paris when he was concocting this stuff. I mean, people like Anna Isnin, the writer Anna Isnin, uh, she, uh, she got Henry Miller hooked on it. Um, Anna Isnin was talking about how um, she had various uh, croups and coughs and this and that, and Jacobson gave her a shot. She said, I felt like I was on fire, and then suddenly all my symptoms disappeared, and they had to go back and get more. So, I mean, this is actually what happened as far back as the 30s. They just felt so good that whatever it was, um, they didn't care. Yeah. Crazy. It's just, it's just amazing. I, I'm completely blown away just by how, <laughs> how pervasive this was and just sort of like how permissible it was, you know, that it was, but I guess I like, I shouldn't be because I, you know, I drew the, the comparison to, 
the cocaine, you know, widespread cocaine use in the 80s. It seems kind of like it was uh, a precursor to that whole whole thing. So. Well, it was. I mean, and this really was when 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 1973-74 rolled around, this was the basis for Nixon's starting the war on drugs. Right. It was that, it was this, the scandal when this broke in the New York Times and on WABC and IMS Radio, when this stuff broke, Geraldo was one of the big crusaders about Geraldo Rivera. Oh, oh, when this story broke all over the place, it was such a scandal. And of course, Nixon had asked for these objections from Max Jacobson, because he, he and Kennedy were friends in the Senate, and he knew Kennedy was taking the drug. And um, Jacobson turned him down and said, no, you're an alcoholic. You can't have these drugs. They counter, they're, they're counter-indicative with alcohol. And I, let's, let's sort of dive into the Kennedy connection, because that's a big part of the book. And, and you know, you, you sort of introduce the idea that, you know, it may not necessarily have been the, the, the you know, the core reason behind the assassination, but it certainly sort of uh, fueled the feelings that Kennedy needed to be taken out because he was becoming completely unpredictable and dangerous as he, he became was, more yes. addicted. I agree with you. He was na- he was at that point by 1963, early 63. He was a phenomenal danger in the eyes of the CIA. I mean, he'd become a danger. Public didn't know about it, but there were a whole bunch of things that happened. Um, <clears throat> on the one hand, all the people inside the administration knew that Kennedy was taking drugs from this doctor. Um, and if and in the book, you'll see a letter in the photo section that Kennedy had asked his doctor, Janet Travell, to write saying he was in perfect health and fit to be president. He wasn't. He had a fatal disease. That disease was called Addison's disease, a disease of the adrenal system, and um, that was killing him. He had Crohn's disease, also called irritable bowel syndrome. He had um, a severe back injury from World War II. This guy was on five injections of Novocaine a day. He was on constant phenobarb, phenobarbital for the irritable, for a muscle relaxant for the um, irritable bowel syndrome. He was on antidepressants, very early forms of them, and then he got addicted to methamphetamines. So he was literally a walking cess pharmaceutical cesspool. Right, right. And everybody around him knew it, including LBJ, by the way. But they all knew it. Right. Kind of like the FDR uh, in the wheelchair situation. Right. But, of course, the press looked the other way. Like, oh, Kennedy hurt his back in the war. He's got to sit in a rocking chair. Oh, that poor man, that poor man. The guy walked on crutches when he wasn't in, 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 in the media. So... I mean, for all the youthful vigor that he represented, he was really a sick, physically a sick guy. What the drugs did was, as they became more pervasive, and remember, Jackie was a second wife. He was married to some German spy before that, but it was annulled. Um, Kennedy became hypersexual from the drugs. And literally, if it walked, he wanted it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. That was Kennedy. And it went so far by 1962 that Kennedy was making appointments with call girls who lived around Central Park so he could slip away from his Secret Service detail. Imagine this. Jesus. You slip away from your Secret Service detail, go to some call girl's apartment for sex. And the CIA was thinking, what if 
the Soviets knew. They did. And the CIA knew the Soviets knew. And what if they were um, competent enough to plant one of their spies as a call girl, hooking up with Kennedy, and Kennedy gets, um, he's either kidnapped. Then they realized when they tapped Marilyn Monroe's phone about Operation Blue Fly and Moonbeam and those two, um, they were the two files that uh, um, non-earthly objects that fall from space were filed under, Moonbeam and Blue Fly. So um, Kennedy's, so Marilyn Monroe, who's patient, threatens Kennedy by saying she'll talk about things that come down from outer space that are over in Area 51. (laughs) She didn't call it that. She said that secret air base in in Nevada. The CIA now knows that Kennedy is is doing pillow talk. He's speaking out of school. So not only is he having sex with a bunch of women, not only is he on this drug methamphetamines, not only is he taking LSD that another mistress, Mary Meyer, was bringing in from Timothy Leary, but the guy's slipping away from the Secret Service detail and spilling state secrets to Marilyn Monroe. Right. And God knows who else. And And additionally, with all the the sort of psychoses and stuff that are fueled by the methamphetamine, you got the guy, you know, he's got his finger on the button, so you don't know what what he could do if he... So in 1962, you knew there'd be a Corso moment. So in 1962, (laughs) 1962, Phil Corso is leaving the, uh, the armed service, he's retiring, and he is becomes... Um, he testifies before the, I believe it's the Senate Judiciary Committee, right? And what he's testifying to, and of course, was no radical liberal. If, if anything, he was way on the other side. He testifies to the CIA's manipulating what are called NIEs, National Intelligence Estimates. These are the official intelligence reports estimating what types of things are going on in the world. These are NIEs. Corso is testifying to his assertion as a member of Army G2 Intelligence and his whole history that the CIA, which he considers an enemy, is doctoring the NIEs for political purposes. So it's not just that they're saying what's real and what they believe is true. It's what they believe the government wants to hear to serve their own interests. And that's what he accuses them of in Senate testimony that is classified. I have a copy of the testimony. In the middle of that testimony, Corso reveals that the CIA, and I've heard the story from other places too, but this is it. This is in Senate testimony that the CIA is fronting for drug lords in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, and laundering money for the drug, for narco traffickers, for drug growers, drug harvesters. Well, that's, that's like fundamental, classified. Bobby Kennedy hears about this testimony. He's still attorney general. He hears about this testimony and he says, I want a copy of this testimony. Right. Corso says, I will only allow you to see it because he, they gave him the right to um, determine who gets read it and who doesn't. I will let you see it if and only if you promise to turn this over to your brother as raw testimony. Bobby Kennedy agrees. I saw the sign out slip. Bobby Kennedy's signature on it. Turns it over to Jack Kennedy. It's now 1963. <clears throat> 
And Kennedy realizes that, now remember, in 1954, flashback 10 years, in 1954, the French Foreign Legion um, fortified camp, right, fortified base at Dien Bien Phu is surrounded in falls to Viet Minh. Yeah. Right? And that forces the French out. At that base, the NBN Fu, there was a small group of United States Marines. Eisenhower would not support the French in Vietnam. He religiously kept us out of wars in Southeast Asia. He's the guy who did the armistice in Korea in 1953. So he's not going to get back into a war in Vietnam on the side of the French. The hell with Vietnam. Who cares? Right. ZM is involved in drugs. Madame New is involved in drugs. Kennedy makes a decision in 1963 to do a couple of things. One, pull U.S. advisors out. The Marines were advisors in 54. Pull U.S. advisors out of Vietnam completely. Withdraw backing from the ZM regime. That resulted in the coup. Withdraw backing from the ZM regime and get us out of Vietnam. But also, he's realizing that the CIA has paramilitary in Southeast Asia. He basically terminates the role of the paramilitary, cuts the paramilitary off. Now we know the CIA has extensive paramilitary in Asia, right, in uh, the Middle East right now. Right. But he cuts it out, and he basically creates the special forces, the Green Berets, and Navy SEALs. In other words, he takes covert military operations Okay, that's the bigger picture. He takes them out of the hands of the Central Intelligence Agency. And this is going on right now before our eyes. He takes it out of the CIA and migrates it over to the Pentagon with two new Army commands, two new military commands, one for the Navy, one for the Army. Right, okay? essentially now, them in the, in the in Vietnam. We're seeing this right now with, um, what's his face, Chuck Hagel, the, 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 uh, the Secretary of Defense, now tasked, and this guy, what's his face, Brennan, now who's at the CIA, now tasked with taking the drone wars, as much as they can do that, out of the CIA and putting them under Pentagon jurisdiction, so they're putting them into the um, bureaucracy of the military. This is a repeat of 1963. <laughs> so what happens is, now, the CIA, now, why was the CIA in South Asia? One was, of course, they were laundering drug money. They didn't get enough money in their black budget. They needed more money, so they were getting paid by drug lords. That's one. Two, there's oil in the South China Sea and in the um, Southeast Asia. How do we know that? It goes back to the Japanese in the 1930s. Um, the Japanese wanted the Southeast Asia oil. That's what they wanted. Why? The Japanese were a big naval power. In Japanese military thinking, since they're an island nation, like, you know, uh, like Great Britain, they're an island nation, right? right? An island nation must rely on its navy. Right, the, uh, the British and the Spanish Armada. Exactly. You rely on your navy to defend yourself. That's the Japanese view of war. The Japanese view of war, circa 1920s, is that you fight a major naval sea battle. That's how they defeated the Soviets in the, in the um, um, Soviet-Japanese War. You fight a major sea battle, defeat the other's navy, and they can't invade you. So the Japanese, in order to pursue 
their um, empire, their um, imperial claims, they invaded China and they were advancing from China across the mountains, it's called the Burmese Hump, into Burma and into Southeast Asia to, for oil. Right. Right? They needed oil to, to prosecute a war. The United States was bombing the Japanese. Remember um, Claire Chenault and the Flying Tigers? and uh, Well, that was a covert United States military operation to bomb the Japanese to prevent them from reaching the Southeast Asia oil fields. That was one of the reasons for Pearl Harbor. The Japanese wanted an agreement with the U.S. You stay off our side of the Pacific, and we're not going to bother you. And the U.S. said, you're an Axis power. We're not going to let you do that. Yeah. And they're negotiating. And so that's the importance of oil in Southeast Asia. Well, that's not lost on the United States. The CIA wanted control for the United States of that oil. So to let... North Vietnam invade the South and turn the whole region communist, the domino theory, right? South Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia. For that, we needed to stop the North Vietnamese to preserve the one deep water port in that whole area, deep enough for tankers, heavy, um, heavy capacity tankers. What was the name of that port? Haiphong. Okay. Therefore, it was vital that for us that we keep that port. So when Kennedy said, I'm pulling us out, the CIA freaked out. That's only then the other element happening, this is 1963, is that the Bobby Baker scandal was taking place in the Senate. And Bobby Baker worked for none other than Lyndon Johnson, who was Senate Majority Leader. And as the Bobby Baker scandal, as the whole scandal began to unravel in the Senate, Bobby Kennedy knew that, J that LBJ could not be on the 1964 re-election ticket. Couldn't happen. The CIA knew that Kennedy was not only slipping away from the Secret Service guards, but that he was talking out of school, and now he directly affected the CIA's entire program by pulling him out of Southeast Asia, cutting them off from drug money. So they realized, in their perception of things, that Kennedy was a phenomenal liability to them. And he wouldn't even live anyway through his second term because of Addison's disease. So they went to LBJ and they said, remember the game Monopoly, Mr. Vice President? You can go to jail right now and not collect your $200. Or you could go to the White House and collect far more than $200, here's how. And LBJ signed on to make sure that whatever happened to Kennedy was covered up. And that's how the assassination plot began. CIA inspired. The Cubans hated Kennedy because of the Bay of Pigs. Great, let's get somebody from the Cubans. The mob hated Kennedy because Joe Kennedy who was running booze into New York Harbor with, My with um, Meyer Lansky, remember Murder Incorporated? Uh -huh. Meyer Lansky and the Bronfmans of Seagram's, the Canadians, running that booze in, had uh, made a deal with Sam Giancana for the Cook County vote. If you remember back to 1960, Kennedy was losing the popular vote. It was so close. It was in the wee-wee hours. But when Cook County reported in Illinois, that swung 
the electoral votes in Illinois, that put Kennedy over the top, and that's how Kennedy won the election. That deal, Joe Kennedy saying to Sam Giancana, you give me the Cook County vote, I will keep you guys free from federal investigations. Well, as soon as Bobby Kennedy becomes Attorney General, what happens? The McClellan Senate uh, organized crime hearings, the Jimmy Hoffa story. Bobby Kennedy uh, basically didn't go with the plan. Right. So under President Kennedy, the mob was in a lot of trouble. So you had the mob involved. You had the CIA, you had the mob, you had the Cubans. Among the, and you had LBJ. And that was the chemistry for getting shooters to take out Kennedy in Johnson's backyard. Right. And that was in part fueled by how crazy Kennedy was acting under the influence of Max Jacobson's methamphetamines. Right. Which let's is circle, really- yeah, let's circle back sort of and talk about how he deteriorated under the influence of the meth. Because that, right. that's, that's, you know, that, that sort of uh, informs this, this story, if you will, because that, that explains how, it, and in a way, he's becoming unstable. The CIA sees it. And you got to imagine probably that that he probably mentally isn't all there as far as sort of like keeping his guard up, if you will. It sounds like his brother was the one who was kind of watching out for him, and he sounds like he's just willy-nilly doing drugs and banging women and, and, and you know, blowing terrible uh, deals, you know, summits with the Russians and stuff like that. It's like he's, well, that's he the other aspect. know what he's doing. That's the other aspect, that in Vienna... In 1961, Kennedy is high on drugs during the summit with Khrushchev. Really high on drugs. And remember, Khrushchev knew that Jacobson had been turned by the Soviets in the 1930s. So they've got a man injecting a very powerful drug into the president. Uh, Before the Vienna summit... And Kennedy had invited Jacobson, didn't invite him, ordered him to accompany him on the summit because he needed those injections to stay focused. <clears throat> it's as if he were taking Ritalin, right? Yeah. So he needed it to stay focused. He invites Jacobson. So Khrushchev has an appointment. Right, They're going to meet in this conference room in Vienna. Khrushchev doesn't show up. Kennedy had taken his injection but now he was coming down from it, and he wanted more. So he says to Jacobson, Max, I, I need more drug. You, you got to, you know, I'm feeling woozy. You got to shoot me up again. But Jacobson says, Mr. President, I cannot do this. I've already given you the max dose you can handle. Too much more, and, and you're going to be um, unable to function. You're going to become stuporous. I'm the president. I'm ordering you to inject me again. They're still waiting for Khrushchev. He injects him again. Khrushchev shows up, and Kennedy is stumbling around nearly stuporous. Khrushchev looks at him and says, this, this little wimp, this little puppy dog, it's nothing. I could roll this guy over. And he beats Kennedy up, and Kennedy admits it. He says to James Reston of the New York Times, um, when, when he goes back to Berlin, he says, it was the worst day of my life. I was beaten up. He treated me like a child. Kennedy was acting like a child, a drunken child. Yeah. So shortly after that, Khrushchev, knowing, by the way, here's the deal. Here's, like, the big secret. The Soviets in 
did not have intercontinental ballistic missiles. They had missiles. They had intermediate-range ballistic missiles, but they couldn't reach the United States. <clears throat> so Khrushchev needed an angle to threaten the United States to get the United States. He needed something to come back to the Soviets with. And that was to get Kennedy to take missiles out of Turkey. So he begins installing missiles in Cuba. Now the Soviet uh, parliament, the Supreme Soviet, doesn't know that they don't have intercontinental ballistic missiles. Khrushchev lied by saying they did. So Kennedy at first, and the CIA, this is right in front of the CIA, knows that um, the missiles are going to Cuba. And the national, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, has photographs of these missiles. Kennedy knows the missiles are there, but he's going to make believe they're not. Oh, I'm not going to look. I'll look the other way. What do I care? Ninety miles from Florida, there are Soviet missiles. Yeah. <laughs> Corso hears from the NRO. He's got friends there because he was in intelligence for so long that he sees the photographs. So what he does is he goes to one of these columnists in Boston and blows the whistle on the missiles. So Kennedy's on his way to Hyannisport, right? The story pops up, and I think it's the Boston Globe. I'm not sure which paper it was. But it, and then a couple of congressmen, Mike Feigen, another one, gets the story. They start saying the Soviets have missiles in Cuba, right? So the Kennedy, Air Force One makes a U-turn, heads back to D.C., and that's the big crisis. So again... This was so serious because we had to confront the Soviets directly on these missiles, right? Mm -hmm. This is so serious. How serious was it? This was so serious <laughs> that this um, interceptor, Air Force interceptor pilot, George Merritt, who was flying out of Edwards, when he was on UFO Hunters, was sitting down. He's saying, do you know that in 1962... During the missile crisis, uh, the Air Force was uh, scrambling interceptors because they believed that the Soviet bomber fleet would fly over Alaska and attack the United States. And so they were assembling interceptor squadrons to confront them. So what we would do is we would fly up over the Bering Straits, hit our fail-safe points, right, circle around and come back. And that, this has been done, by the way, ever since the end of World War II. So, but he said, and this is the, for me, it was the bomb. Uh -huh. When we were flying over Alaska, over the whole northwestern United States, we were carrying nuclear-tipped air-to-air missiles. The plan was, and this is the second time I've heard this, the plan was, you see the Soviet bomber fleet, you fire your nuclear missiles over the Bering Straits and get the hell out and get back and get more. Oh, They're geez. flying nuclear weapons over the United States mainland, and they knew that some of those bombers would get through with Soviet missiles, with guided missiles. Now, again, little-known story, not really covered. You don't see this thing turning up a, a lot, but that's what this guy told me. So that's how serious this was in 1962, all brought to that point by a drugged-out Kennedy who couldn't stand up to Khrushchev, who believed that Kennedy could be rolled over like some bum in the street. Right. That's Jacobson. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. Now, did he... 
Well, this wasn't really covered in the book at all, but I was kind of wondering, you know, his association with Kennedy was sort of like the pinnacle of his, you know, professional and personal life. Like he was absolutely the greatest thing that ever happened to him. What was his reaction when Kennedy was killed? Was he distraught? Was did he blame himself at all? You know, how did he how did he react to all that? He was stunned. I mean, remember, Jacobson's whole issue was he's blameless. I didn't do this. He's blameless. Right. He actually said to Kennedy, there's a story in the book about after Bobby Kennedy knew what kind of drugs his brother was taking, he confronted Jacobson and Jacobson's friend, Congressional Medal of Honor winner Mike Samick, who was a pilot in World War II, he worked for the OSS, threw him out of the White House, said, get back to New York, get out of here, we don't want you here. Jacobson was so upset that he resigned as Kennedy's doctor. That's why Kennedy brought him to the Carlisle Hotel off Central Park, convinced him, he even asked him to move into the White House, give up his medical practice, be the Kennedy's personal, full-time, 24-7 physician living in the family quarters of the White House on the second floor. <laughs> and Jacobson said, no, I've got patients. I've got, uh, got my MS patients. But So, yeah, Jacobson was stunned when Kennedy was killed. But remember, at that point, uh, in 1963, Jacobson was a wash in show business stuff. Right. And and he was seeing people getting killed. Marilyn Monroe had died the year before. Mm-hmm. He knew. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille had died. Marilyn Monroe had died. I mean, he knew that an excess of his drugs were killer. He knew that. Right. That's why he was trying to control the dosage. Kennedy didn't die from an injection. He died because the injections made him so psychotic that the CIA no longer believed that Kennedy could function as a president without getting us into another world war. Right. Well, it seems like even though he saw that these people that he was drugging were dying, it didn't seem to affect his... He's no, it didn't. It. He didn't seem to warn them or anything. It wasn't like he was... Well, I'm sure he kind of warned them about dosage and stuff like that, but he wasn't like, hey, you know, this could kill you eventually if you don't... That's exactly right. Straight up. Precisely right, yeah. No, we know what became of uh, Jacobson. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, like, mm-hmm. all these people are hooked on this, on these drugs and, and shit. So what happens... I think in the book, I think it was Milton Berle, but I don't know exactly who, but he says, you know, drug, it was funny, it's so antiquated, he said drug confrontations, and then in brackets it's like interventions, which is Mm -hmm. what he means. Right. It's like there were no interventions back then, and it seemed like if they wanted to fix somebody up, they threw him in like a psych ward for like a Well, that's what happened with Bob Cummings. Right. exactly what happened. Um, His family, again, the longer story is, that um, Bob Cummings' really good friend was this famous TV host, real personality, big in the 50s, Art Linkletter, right? House party, children say the right. funniest things, right? That guy, okay? Oh, it was Linkletter that said that about interviews. Linkletter, right. So Jacobson's son, Tommy Jacobson, went to the Cummings' children. Bob had already been divorced from their mother, and he said, do you know what drugs your father is getting? And he explained the drugs. <clears throat> Bob Cummings was, at this point, psychotic. So they prevailed on Linkletter to set up this supposedly a party for Cummings, and what really happened was it was the men in the white coats, and they came to take him away. Literally, they showed up in a van, put him in a straitjacket, off he went. So Cummings is now institutionalized. He's no money. The IRS has seized all of his assets. His wife has divorced him. And he's in a mental institution. 
and he prevails on Linkletter to get him out, which Linkletter does. So that was the nature of the intervention. Right. Is that kind of what happened to a lot of these folks where they sort of like maybe, you know, step back and dried out, if you will? Because obviously a lot of these people that he got hooked on this stuff, you know, they went on to live fairly productive lives. So they must not have, uh, unless, you know, they must they must have somehow found a way out of the, the morale. Well, I mean, they were marginally productive lives. I mean, Rod Sterling lived a very productive life, but he died at 50. That's true, yeah. Right? I mean, Bob Cummings, his career fell like a rock. Um, because of Jacobson. In fact, the, the story is that Bob Cummings became so hyper grandiose that now he's doing a series with, with a Julie Newmore, right? Um, Catwoman. Mm-hmm. He's doing a series with her called My Living Doll. She's a robot and he's a scientist. It's supposed to be a love interest, right? right. It's, it's kind of like, like a, like I Dream of Jeannie or, uh, Bewitched, Yeah, right? I Dream of Jeannie, you know, like a, a modern <clears throat> Isaac Asimov version of Pygmalion, right? So, um, Cummings is getting upset because, I mean, here's Cummings, who's, you know, not exactly a young, handsome playboy, right? Uh-huh. Older guy now. And he's supposed to be falling in love with this robot. And Julie Newmar, I mean, uh, one of the roles she played before the show was she was this character from Lil Abner called Stupefying Jones, this mammothly beautiful uh, woman. Well, we met her. We interviewed Julie Newmar. <clears throat> um, and Julie Newmar said that Bob Cummings was getting angrier and angrier because all the fans were looking at Julie Newmar. She was the star of the show. Cummings was supposed to be the star of the show, so Cummings was so mad. He began to want a bigger part in the show. So again, fueled by these drugs, he begins to, he commissions a script for My Living Doll, which he's takes more of a role. Then he challenges the head of CBS, whose name was Jack Aubrey. Jack Aubrey's nickname was The Snake. And he was nicknamed The Snake because while he was shaking your hand and telling you how wonderful you were doing, he was busy injecting venom into your back and killing you. That was Jack Aubrey. Jack Aubrey was the guy who fired my godfather, Jack Benny, from television. He says to Jack Benny, Jack Benny! Right, one of the biggest vaudeville stars, one of the biggest radio stars. He says to Benny, your career is done, you'll never be on television again. He says that to him. So when Bob Cummings goes to Aubrey and says, this is the script I want, if you don't do this script, I'm walking. Aubrey says, that's right. You're not walking, you're thrown out. And not only are you thrown out, but I'm going to spread the word throughout the industry that you're toxic, you're a drug addict, you're on methamphetamines. Nobody will hire you. You'll die a bum. And that was the end of Bob Cummings' television career. Yeah, that guy, he really, that, that was kind of the sad, sad turn of events because, you know, this guy's falling apart as it is. He's becoming an asshole. I mean, you can't really, you know, you, you kind of you kind of begrudgingly feel bad for the guy, but then it's like he's just wiped out. Right, and then Cummings oh, tries to Cummings tries to get Julie Newmar addicted. He he shoots himself. I mean, she told me the story. She said, "There's this guy. He's out in my dressing room, and he takes a a, a needle and he injects the stuff right into his ankle." Then he says, "Come on, I'll do you next." She says, "Not on your life." Jesus, it's just uh, it's just wild stuff. Now, what I I was surprised to see that. Uh, 
that Jacobson's son was involved in, in some of the stuff on the West Coast. What became of him down the line? Did Still alive. Uh, okay. First of all, he blew the whistle on his father with the Bob Cummings family. Tommy Jacobson, he, uh, we have him on tape. He's alive. He's like close to 90, I think, now. Oh, wow. But um, <clears throat> he became a medical doctor. He was born in Berlin, became a medical doctor. Um, he treated Marilyn Monroe. He was giving her that substance right up until 1962. Right, right. That's what I mean. He didn't seem mm-hmm. to suffer a lot of the same fate as his father, though. Did he sort of roll over? He did over? have remorse. He did have remorse of what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I wasn't sure because uh, it, it never really, uh, like I said, I was surprised to see this guy kind of had it on both coasts in a way through his son. And, oh, yeah. It seemed like he was probably kind of using him in a way to... To facilitate the whole enterprise, if you will, to be his West Coast wing on all this. Well, there was, I mean, these people on the West Coast, all the show business folks wanted the drug, and there were other doctors. I mean, there's this motion picture, this Blake Edwards motion picture, I think it's called SOB, Standard Operating Bullshit. And you see with Julie Andrews, and uh, in that movie, SOB, uh, Robert Preston, remember the famous Robert Preston from Music Man? Better known in the cult movie, the last, uh, the last Starfighter, or whatever. Uh-huh. Preston is playing Doctor Feelgood, giving people meth shots at the party. Well, that was good. What I was going to ask you, beyond Jacobson's son, was it, was was this sort of like was this a more prevalent thing than than even we think? Were there more oh, yeah. doctors doing this sort of thing? Yep, um, <clears throat> there were a lot of doctors picking up on this as meth became the um, gotta-have drug in Hollywood. Because it, it, it before there was cocaine, before there was cocaine powder, it was meth that gave you that feeling of hyper-grandiosity that allowed you to achieve what you could achieve. I mean, years ago, Joe Martin and I wrote the book, um, Haunting of the President, eons ago, right? Yeah. And um, in the book, we're talking about why Ronald Reagan ultimately came to rely on psychic and astrologer Joan Quigley to cast his um, <clears throat> a chart and pick the most propitious days to do presidential things. The whole White House in the 80s was run by this person, Joan Quigley, an astrologer. Yeah. Right? It's like Pharaoh's wise man, right? Pharaoh's prophets running the White House, when the plane should take off, when he should wind up in Iceland, when he should talk to, um, what's his face, Gorbachev, right? Mm -hmm. The story goes that Vice President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, sees that Air Force One is taking off at these odd hours, like 5.03 and 32 seconds to go. And finally he goes to Mike Deaver, who is uh, on the president's staff, chief of staff. He says to Deaver, why... I don't understand these oddball hours in the president's schedule. And Deaver says, don't you know? Haven't you heard? The whole White House is being run by an astrologer, Joan Quigley. And Bush just rocks back in his chair and goes, oh, my God. (laughs) Right? And one of the reasons we explained for this, why Nancy was Nancy Reagan, why Nancy Reagan involved Joan Quigley is that, and this is a true story, in Hollywood, making a motion picture, making a television series, doing something in Hollywood is as impossible to do as a bumblebee's flying, right? 
Nobody knows how a bumblebee can fly because it's, it's, it's unaerodynamic to the max. Same with hummingbirds. Okay? So you use every angle you can use. And one of those angles was the paranormal. Presidents used them all the way since Franklin Pierce, right, in the White House, when he, having a channel. Or Abraham Lincoln brought in Nettie Coburn to invoke a ghost that would tell him to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. You didn't see that in the movie, Lincoln, did you? <laughs> um, but that's a true story. So that's what goes on. Well, drugs and cocaine in Hollywood in the 80s was that kind of thing. But that's what met, um, methamphetamines meth was, methamphetamines were in the 1960s and 70s in Hollywood. Right, right. So it wasn't just Jacobson, it was just this widespread thing, but he had the most, seemed like he had the most high-profile clients of all. He did, and the more patients screamed, the more Jacobson would oblige them. And we see this exactly what happened today with this Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson. Right. It was a dangerous drug he was injecting into Jackson, but Jackson wanted it, had to have it, couldn't function without it, Murray did it, and he died. Exactly, yeah. Well, he was getting like 150 grand a month or something crazy like that. So Exactly. <laughs> he probably thought, hey, Do you what know. your patient ask, and that's what these doctors did. So it still continues to this day. It's just it the, sure the, the drugs just changed, that's all. It just, yeah, the drug changed, the practice continues. Talk a little bit about, because I thought this was really interesting, just how, just to sort of get into the mind of uh, Jacobson, I, I, you pointed out a few times just how, like, just crazy his office was and how he was filthy and covered in blood and, you know, all, all kind. you're just a strange dude. You know, people up until now in this conversation may have been imagining, you know, their sterile doctor's office situation, but it was so far removed from that scenario that it, that it bears a uh, discussion. So talk, talk a little bit about that. Sure. And that was what was so ironic about Jacobson's office. First of all, the office was filthy. It was run out of his apartment, first of all. This wasn't a real medical office. This was his apartment. With an adjacent room as a waiting room. And Jacobson had a lab in the apartment. And the lab was literally this concoction of sheep gonads and blood serum and placentas and, you know, medical waste and you know, stuff that today would be so toxic that a hazmat team would come in. Jacobson himself was filthy. He had a lab coat that was spattered with blood. He had track marks up and down his arm because he was injecting himself. He had, um, <clears throat> Blood serum all over the place. That was, that was the office. Filthy. And that's what, another reason why his license was pulled. When the, um, medical examiner, when the medical examination board came in, they saw the office and said, this thing, you know, you can't run a medical practice out of this. It's filthy. Right. Get out of here. Well, the fascinating thing about Circa 1970, Max Jacobson's office, actually circa 1960, because that's what Kennedy reacted to, too. He walks into the office because his roommate from Harvard, Chuck Spaulding, right? You know those funny rubber balls? Spaulding's. Uh, Chuck (laughs) Spaulding, Chuck Spaulding hooks him up with Jacobson. Kennedy is appalled by the state of Jacobson's office. I mean, it's filthy. It's it's sickened him. But he was sick. He was on his last legs. He was going to lose the election. He needed a boost. But Jacobson, all the way back in the 1920s in Berlin, one of the reasons he never became a surgeon, even though he had a surgery residency at uh, at um, <clears throat> this hospital of charity in, in Berlin, was that, he felt 
that the operating room standards in the 1920s, since nobody used disinfectants, since there were no antibiotics, it's literally the operation was a great success. Too bad the patient died. They died from infections. We're seeing this now with superbugs, right? You went to the hospital for something, and you can contract an infection that's so bad, no antibiotic will fix it because the um, bacteria have evolved to the point where they're resistant to the antibiotics uh, you're, uh, you're receiving, mm-hmm. okay? So Jacobson was so upset about the state of cleanliness and the antiseptic nature of operating rooms, he opted not to become a surgeon and went into internal medicine instead. Yet by the 19, yet by the, by the 40s and 50s and 60s, his office was a pigsty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy, and it's it's remarkable. I guess it says a lot about the power of the drug because you've got these powerful, I get, you know, you, you try to get into the mind of these people. You get these powerful, prominent entertainers and politicians, and you know, if I walked into an office like that, I'd spin on my heel and walk out. But the, of course, you know, they're waiting around to get their shots. It's amazing. Exactly. I mean, and you've got people like Truman Capote, like Tennessee Williams, uh, who are living on these injections. I mean, people. We'll say, oh, Tennessee Williams was a real big drug addict. Oh, this, oh, that. He was a meth addict. He was completely addicted to methamphetamines. That was Tennessee Williams. That was Truman Capote. And they wrote about it, and they promulgated it, and they brought other people to visit Jacobson. There were these parties in his office that would go on till 3 and 4 in the morning, and um, if you hung around the office... Part of what you got from Max Jacobson was this powerful methamphetamine injection, and that's why they would hang around the office to get that injection. Let's bring it back one more time to the Kennedy thing, because I think it bears uh, also talking about the, the the whole story about the debate, because that story has been, the, the debate itself has been immortalized as this amazing turning point in American political history and, and you know, a real historic sort of moment. And, of course, uh, as we learn from the book, there's Dr. Jacobson lurking in the background, really fueling what happened, which is right. stunning. I mean, I'm amazed, uh, just before I before I cut you, I don't mean to cut you off, but like, I'm just amazed that, you know, I'm learning all this now, like, for the first time, having read this book. You'd think that this this thing would have been a movie by now, or, or that it would be more well-known. It's, it's stunning that these stories kind of still lurk in the background. Well, there are two elements to this. Element one is that it would have been a movie by now. It would have been, you know, heavy-duty stuff, except the people writing about it years ago were afraid of the Kennedys. And I had my own personal experience. Um, This book was about to sell to HarperCollins, oh, circa 2006. Yeah. Right, before UFO Hunters. And one of the reasons that, um, it was very funny, one of the reasons that um, Harper was so interested in Rick and me as writers was that the um, we had just gotten, we were getting um, these uh, solicitations from the History Channel to do a pilot for UFO, for the show was then called UFO Road Trip, not UFO Hunters. Yeah. 
And so Pat Eskert and I were, you know, getting these, oh, you know, you, let's talk about this, the production, because I'd been on UFO Files since 2004. So for two years, I was doing UFO Files episodes for History Channel, right? And so then when we brought Pat Eskert um, into the mix to do this show called uh, UFO Road Trip, it was actually Nancy's idea to do the show. She could, because of what Pat was doing with split screens and all kinds of stuff for um, seeing, well, gee, could a balloon be a UFO and stuff like that, she said to, you know, she said to Pat, why don't you take a little road trip and um, talk to people who've had UFO experiences and look at their film and just make some decisions about their film. Well, at about that same time, I had just made a movie over at Lifetime Television uh, called When Husbands Cheat. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, a, it was based on a book written by a Chicago private detective about how she caught her husband, who was a vice detective, cheating on her. Right. Sounds like the quintessential Lifetime movie. That's why it, I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, so, and so we were then talking about another movie called Green Ice about this major DEA sting in the 1990s that brought down the uh, Cali car, that brought down the Medellin cartel, the Medellin cartel in Colombia, right. right? That was why the drug cartels in Colombia turned over the distribution of marijuana to the Mexicans because we'd shut them down by stealing, by uh, basically um, <clears throat> sucking up all their money. It was a money laundering scheme. It was a money laundering operation. So they were really interested in this, right? So finally, this and the company that was looking at this thing seriously, UFO Road Trip, was Hearst Television, which was becoming um, actuality television. So Hearst was looking at this thing, and then finally the, uh, the head of that division told this producer, no UFO stories, we don't want them. So we're kind of, we have all this footage, so um, I'm now on History Channel doing the old UFO files, you know, black box UFOs, the Dragon's Triangle, things like that. So we take this to that company that's working for the History Channel. They fall on their face. They love it. Goes to History. History loves it. They, so right before we, they order a pilot, a few months before, uh, this book, um, Dr. Feelgood goes to Harper. Harper is thrilled. They want it. I mean, they are putting bags of money on the table. Then the head of that division at Harper says, we're not going to do this. And Harper, and the, uh, the editor is a fear. She says, you're not going to do this because we'll lose the Kennedy family. We will lose them and all the Kennedy books. And that starts this cascade. That alerted the Kennedy family to what was in the book. And we'd already seen Kennedy's medical records. We didn't need any more. Right. Right alerts them. So now we have the Kennedys are an issue. And, and, and sure enough, when the book comes out, one of the big, big writers at Vanity Fair and Huffington Post, who's doing his own book on Jacobs, and that's the funny part about it, he was already researching the story on his own, learns about our book, we come together with information for the Huffington Post and Vanity Fair story, Vanity Fair, you'd think Vanity Fair, my God! This is their meat and potatoes. Nope. Kennedys. We don't touch it. Oh, my God. This is the year. Huffington, this is the 50th anniversary. Huffing, this would be the best right. time to come out. Huffington Post. Howard Feynman, the big dude, Huffington Post. Oh, we've got the truth. Nope. Kennedys. We stay away. That's the Huffington Post. Thank you, Ariana Huffington. You've done it again. <laughs> Where do we get traction for this book? Fox. 
because Fox loved the fact that all the um, liberal media ran because they didn't want to offend Carolyn Kennedy. Yeah. Strange. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird look inside what's the, the the mainstream media right now. Yeah, you open like this um, horrible box and you're staring into Medusa's head. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. It's enlightening. I don't know why people. I understand. I guess I can understand the sort of uh, monetary motivations, but it's it's disappointing to see, you know, that people just don't want to get the truth out there about. And this. you should have seen. And the hate mail we've gotten from this is astounding. Really? I mean, oh God! I mean, ethnic slurs and insults, and you know, one guy's writing, you know, you're the tin hatters, and I mean. The people we interviewed for this book, again and again, I mean, I'm sure Eddie Fisher is not the greatest source of reliable information, but the guy was addicted. He was a Jacobson patient for years. Um, even his family remembers that he was taking these drugs. Um, he told us some unbelievable stories about Jacobson and the drugs. And I mean, um, it was Eddie Fisher, I forget who else, um, brought Jack Kennedy to um, a private meeting with um, Angie Dickinson, Eddie Fisher told us. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was really, you know, strange stuff. So, so you've got all of that. You've got um, this inspiration taking place at Grossinger's in the 1940s. That was the basis of a motion picture, by the way. Um, very famous motion picture, called picture with Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis talking about methamphetamines, and he was a patient of uh, Max Jacobson. In fact, he was a patient. Marilyn was a patient. They both were having an affair on the set of Some Like It Hot. <laughs> Wild. So I guess uh, just just share with us the debate story, because we got off the track there. And uh... Oh, well, the debate story is this, that um, Kennedy had <clears> – <throat> Kennedy was now a patient at this point. Rolling into the fall campaign, Kennedy was now a patient. And um, right before the debates, he goes to Max Jacobson. Now, remember, it takes you more and more meth to achieve the emotional level you want to achieve, right? That's one of the problems of meth. That's why the dosage of this stuff is so vital. So so um, Kennedy lost his voice before the first debate, completely lost his voice, and he's sick. And Nixon is sick, too. Remember, he had this leg infection. Nixon, at one point, had phlebitis, but this was years later. But he has this terrible leg infection. He smashed his leg open. These two guys are now sick, right? Nixon is ahead in the polls. It looks like he will win this election as of October 1960. Kennedy goes to Jacobson, and he can't talk, can't walk, can't talk. Jacobson says, I'll fix you up. That was his Standard line, I'll fix you up. <laughs> he gives Kennedy, right before the debate, an injection directly into his voice box. Kennedy becomes mentally alert. His voice returns. He's a man on fire. 
He goes into that debate. He tricks Richard Nixon into not putting makeup on. Then Kennedy does put makeup on, beats the crap out of Nixon in the debate. Folks can watch it on YouTube. It's all there. Nixon is falling apart on stage. He's sweating. He's decomposing. He's tired. He's got a 5 o'clock shadow because the makeup didn't cover it up. The polls that night shift from slightly favoring Nixon to favoring Kennedy, and Kennedy never lost the polling edge at all um, and won the election with the Cook County vote. All thanks to the little Max boost Jacobson. from Dr. Yep. Max Jacobson. There you go. How methamphetamine changed the course of an election. Absolutely wild. It makes you kind of scared in a way because, you know, we, uh, you, you, you know that the media is really pervasive now, but you almost wonder too, like, what, what's, what's going on under the surface nowadays that we don't know about, you know? It's kind of scary. That's right. I mean, you've no idea what's going on. I mean, and, and this is just, I mean, that, uh, that's why for all the, oh, it's 50 years ago, oh, it's this, you're seeing this now play out. Just technology has brought us new ways to run a secret government. It's just that simple. Right. I mean, you know, so the NSA, I mean, we all knew the NSA was surveilling phone calls. We knew this back in the 1950s. You know, we didn't need this guy, what's-his-face, um, Snowden, to tell us that. He popularized it for us, and the media went wild with the story. But I will bet you that everybody in the media that's publicizing this story privately knew all this was going on. I mean, the first episode of UFO Hunters that was never aired, by the way, never saw the light of day. It was shut down hard by the powers that be. And I mean, if you want to know about censorship, we, we go to Las Vegas. Remember 2006-ish, 2007-ish, there was this guy called Colonel X. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, really, yeah. You get okay. Stephen Greer all whipped up about a UFO hovering <laughs> over Las remember, remember that story? Yeah. That was yeah. a cover of UFO magazine. Nancy did it as a cover. Okay, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Okay, so this mind. guy says, you got to bring your crew out here to film this. You, you know, you, you got to bring folks out here. That, so I managed to get the production company to go to Vegas as the first episode. We go there. Okay? Go to Jim Sanders. Remember Jim Sanders? The Flight 800, TD with Flight 800, Soldiers of Misfortune, Memory Left Behind. Again, another cult writer. Go to Sanders' house. We see this object in the sky. I mean, I gotta tell you, it was unbelievable. Brighter than the moon, hovering there, not moving, right above Vegas. Yeah. What the hell is that thing? So we go up, because there's light diffusion. I mean, Vegas, talk about light pollution. So we go all the way up into the national forest outside of the city, get up to this restaurant, one of these plateaus, set up this telescope, uh, made it to a computer that's mapping the night sky. So we don't want it to be the International Space Station. We don't want it to be a Soviet satellite. We don't want it to be one of our satellites. We just want to know that nothing else should be in that portion of the sky except what we're seeing. Right. Sure enough, we confirm that, right? We get a photo of the sliver-like object, really a good set of photos of the sliver-like object on the um, huge camera telescope. Save it to the computer that we had. I walk inside this, this, this like, lodge, and I'm texting Nancy back in... L.A., we got it. We, we confirmed it. I hit the send button, 
Now, my BlackBerry... Oh, and it disappears. I remember this. I part. walk yeah. outside, the thing disappears. Yeah. Disappears out of sight. And Bill Scott, Aviation Week Bill Scott, tells it, oh, and it's down, right? Sanders, go back to Sanders' house. He says, oh, damn this thing, Bill, damn this thing, Bill, thing just disappeared. We leave Sanders' house. I get a cell phone call. It's back up. It's back up. Ask Bill Scott. Bill Scott says, are they funning with you? They know you saw them. They could see you. They scrubbed your text. They knew exactly what you were doing. You guys leave Sanders' house. The thing goes back up again. They could read your license plate from that platform. It's an NSA surveillance platform scrubbing data. Hello? Yeah. I didn't need, I didn't need this guy Snowden to tell me what the NSA was doing. Right. That's the surprising part about, I think you and I are in agreement there. When I saw all the news break, it was like, well, obviously they're, I, I never trusted whatever you write on, whatever you do on the internet. I figured it was already filtered through. That's right. That's right. And who then, doesn't you think know, that as a fool? If you write an email, I'll put it in these terms. If you put anything in writing as an email, a federal judge will see that email. Okay? Yeah. Bottom line. It's amazing that people, the, the naivety of it all is, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, why is it so, so like, I mean, just the Boston Marathon bombing. I mean, this should have blown people's mind. Yes, you want to catch the bad guys. Yes, they're terrorists. Yes, yes, yes. After you get through with all the yeses, right? All the yeses. Isn't anybody asking, gee, how come within hours they knew who did it? How come they had all these photographs, all these videos, all these this, all these that? We we might as well live in the Truman Show, okay? Right. So if you're crying about the NSA and the CIA and what this idiot Snowden's talking, if you're crying about that, this has been going on for 20 years. Exactly, yeah. And it's just, and, and because it's the, because the, the, they... It's like it's like how they you always kind of presume the FBI was listening to phone calls all the time because they were, and it's like now that they have expanded the net to be able, no pun intended, the you know the, the proverbial fishing net to, to pull in even more information via the internet. Absolutely, so I mean basically what this is is the, uh, the and then the, the same people who are complaining, ooh, the FBI is listening to me, go on Facebook with some or Twitter with their most intimate secrets. <laughs> yeah. Which reveals their location, who they are, where they are, here's my picture, here's what I think, here's what I'm doing, here's a this, here's a that. And they're doing that with the idea that somehow these are private. It's, it's, yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> it's, like I right? said, it's naivety, I don't understand. People are idiots. Yeah. I mean, if you want to be private, for God's sakes, be private. Don't go on Facebook and then complain your privacy is being invaded. Exactly, exactly. Um, so let's let's wrap up the Jacobson story, and then we'll talk a little bit about sort of the current. We're, we're in in sort of the current state of affairs, but I want to mm-hmm. get into some UFO talk with you too. Uh, okay. How did it all come crashing down for him? Uh, obviously, I know because I read the book, but sort of uh, bring it bring it home for folks here. Okay, uh, this is a great story. Kind of this is a great up. story. Focus back now on the Watergate story is breaking. Right, the New York Times. Looks at the Watergate. First of all, the stuff that, oh, Woodward and Bernstein, their brother, the New York Times walked away from this story, okay? Mm-hmm. They walked away from the story. They supported Nixon, by the way, in 1970. They, they walk away from the story. 
right? <clears throat> I can go into why there was a Watergate, but I'm not. But I mean, you know, we don't have any time for that. But so they walk away from the story, leaving it to the Washington Post. Which is why, by the way, in light of current events, there was a Pentagon Papers story, by the way. Okay, so they walk away from it. The Washington Post is left all alone now, and they develop the story. Meanwhile, they get a, um, a, a, a clue, a tip, that Vice President Spiro Agnew is visiting this medical office in New York, the strange doctor. So what they do... And this is um, uh, Jane Brody, um, Boyce uh, Rensenberger, Larry Altman. They surveil the office. They know they got a story here. They surveil the office, right? And they're seeing all these important people going in and out of the office. What the hell is Tennessee Williams? Look at all these people, right? Going in and out of the office. Right. So what they do is they pay a visit to this doctor. Jacobson thinks... My day in the sun has finally come. I'm now going to get the recognition I so richly deserve. Remember, he's high on meth. Yeah. I'm going to get the recognition I believe. I've been in the shadows for so long. I've helped the presidents. I treated Kennedy. I treated Harry Truman. Then Nixon wanted me. Agnew wants me. Now I'm treating these people. Finally, I will get my recognition. That scene of the Ten Commandments? All... Oh, pin that on me, because I'm the guy who gave Charlton Heston his injection. Right, okay. right. He's, he's had his fingerprints all over a whole bunch of historic moments in cinema and politics. So right. He's, he's now, right. there are these reporters in his office, and they're appalled at the condition of this office. This is a <laughs> yeah. doctor's office? Then they pick side. So Jacobson begins bragging about what he did, how he treated Kennedy, how he treated Truman, how they, so Winston Churchill, he treated... He's bragging about this. They're going, who the hell is this guy? So they steal some of the vials of his medicine. They find out that it's almost pure meth. Now they go back to him. Jacobson, believing he's going to be treated as a hero in the media, doesn't realize they're out to expose him. They, ex they begin to expose Jacobson. Right, this is the story. Mm -hmm. The New York State Attorney General, Louis Lefkowitz, pops up and says to them, kill the story. This is Richard Nixon, remember, Lefkowitz is a Republican. Richard Nixon, Spiro Agnew, kill it. So the Times begins to back away. The Watergate story breaks open. All the president's men. The Times says, the hell with this. Right. They break the story. Now Geraldo gets the scent. Geraldo begins breaking the story. Don Imus gets the scent. He's breaking the story. This is now exposing Jacobson. New York State raids Jacobson's office. That's when they see the conditions. They say, this is crazy. This is insane. So they open up medical license revocation hearings on Jacobson. Does he deserve to keep his medical license? Who pops up? Jackie Kennedy. Jackie says to Max Jacobson, if you keep quiet about treating me, I will pay for your legal defense. Who does she bring in? Louis Neiser, the famous, my life in court, the famous Louis Neiser, who's one of Jacobson's parents. But Neiser gets one of his lawyers from his law firm, this guy Simon, uh, this guy Rose, who defends Jacobson. Jacobson is going to be up on criminal charges. 
Louis Nyser's law firm gets them off the criminal charges because they can't do a thing about the medical revocation hearing. So in the early 70s, Jacobson is now losing his medical license. Well, Richard Nixon, I mean, this is a nationwide scandal. Nixon sees this and says this is a dangerous drug. So Jacobson becomes the poster boy for Nixon's war on drugs. So from obscurity and a position of enormous power, willing a drug, Jacobson becomes a tool of the New York Times who needs something, who needs good scandal stuff to beat off the Washington Post, right? That's one thing. So he becomes a tool of the Times, a tool of these radio commentators who also want a great story, a tool for Richard Nixon who needs a raison d'etre for the war on drugs, and of course methamphetamine becomes illegal. <laughs> and Jacobson loses his license, goes to court to get it back, the court dismisses his case. He dies in poverty in 75. Ugh. It's an amazing story. And, uh, you know, we didn't even really get into sort of his early life. It's a, it's a crazy story of, like, rags to... To not, I mean, was it riches? Did he really get super wealthy off this? Well, or was it really he got things. off on the, on the power of it all? Jacob, well, he got off on the power, I yep. mean, basically. But Jacobson bragged that he never took a dime for all of his work, but yet... He had a research laboratory out on the edge of Long Island. Still exists, by the way. And he incorporated it in, in New York State. And we believe that that research facility was really a drug-pushing facility, sending drugs all over the world, because the amount of drugs that passed through that laboratory was unbelievable. The guy was a one-man drug ring. And then somebody who worked for him, remember the, the actress Alice Ghostly, she was on what? She was on Bewitched and a few other shows. Her husband was an actor called Felix Orlandi. Felix Orlandi worked for Max Jacobson, and he told us that Max was pushing drugs all over the place. Plus, remember, he was treating Sam Giancana, and Sam Giancana um, was very enthusiastic about this drug. In fact, <clears throat> Max was introduced to Sam Giancana in Las Vegas by Eddie Fisher. Giancana had a migraine or a severe headache. So he's sitting with Eddie Fisher, forget which casino they were at, which casino hotel, and Eddie Fisher says to Giancana, this, uh, this doctor can fix you up. So Gene kind of looks at Max and says, what do you mean? Max says, I can fix you up with one injection. And typical Momo Giancana, right, says, you better. <laughs> right? He does. Giancana is cured. So Giancana is a patient. Judy Exner Campbell's a patient. Peter Lawford's a patient. Sammy Davis Jr. is a patient. Dean Martin's a patient. Frank Sinatra's a patient. Crazy. And I guess it's in typical sort of a drug story. When things go wrong, no one, <laughs> you know, they they just kind of let them twist in the wind. They're all they're all set. So right, exactly. It's uh, it's it's a it's a strange and and, and compelling story. And and folks can get Doctor Feelgood at bookstores all over the place, right? It's, yeah, it's go to Amazon, go to B and A, go to Barnes and Noble, um, go to the publisher's website, Skyhorse Publishing. Go to your favorite bookstore, buy it, buy the hard copy. Look through it and just look at the pictures. I mean, the pictures alone are worth. I mean, here's a picture in the book of Max Jacobson with John F. Kennedy. Here's your proof. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it's compelling stuff, folks. Like I said, go pick up the book. It's it's a great sort of uh, it's a great summertime read. And and for the folks who listen to this show, it's the kind of book you can read. And, and 
if you got the friends who are sort of like, oh, you're into that weird UFO stuff, this is this is kind of like a good toe in the water kind of book you can you can give to them and and be like, no, the world's a lot stranger than you think. Here, read this book and you know come back to me and then maybe I can. In- you know, inform you about some of the other strange things that are happening in the world. Right, and that's why when when you look at the quote-unquote straight news shows, right, howling about conspiracy nuts, and then they start talking about this conspiracy that's been like a 50, 40-year conspiracy from the NSA about tracking communications. I mean, you know, we have to say... Are you guys psychotic? Are you living in a schizophrenic world, totally split off from reality? Is is that what you're doing? I mean, that conspiracy is okay. This conspiracy is not. Yeah. Crazy. It is. I mean, that's what bothers me. It's the hypocrisy of this. Yeah, yeah. But if anything, it's your, you know, I guess we're moving into, like, just general discussion now. And If anything, that's sort of par for the course, uh... You know, having seen and heard as much as I've heard over the last eight years, it's it's no surprise that, that the real story never really makes it onto the mainstream media. No, it doesn't. And this is the whole thing, but there is a level of goings-on, whether it's UFOs, whether it's all kinds of conspiracies that are real. I mean, governments, you know, it's great to be, oh, it's like transparent and, you know, we should, you know, really throw the light on this stuff. Tell me a government that does that, right. right? I mean, just tell me a government that does that. You cannot, I mean, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's part of the practicality of, what, are you going to go to Russia and say, tell us, uh, you know, tell us everything you, uh, all you guys are doing around the world. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. Tell yeah. us how you murdered that um, ex-Soviet agent uh, in England, how you poisoned them to death. You go to the Israelis. Really, what did Yasser Arafat die from? You know, did he have some sudden disease? I, I don't get it. I mean, governments have secret um, clandestine services. The clandestine services do stuff for them, right? Stuff that needs to be done. It's, it's, there's this great movie, a great Oliver Stone movie called Any Given Sunday. And in it, Al Pacino plays this football coach, Tony Diamato. Mm-hmm. And one of the speeches Tony D'Amato gives, the character Tony D'Amato gives, is that football is like life. If you control the edges, you can control the happening of events. So his model is, if you control the inches on the line of scrimmage, you control the downs. Control the downs, you control the game. Mm -hmm. If you control the seconds on a clock, you control the game. So control the seconds, control the inches, you control the game. How do you apply that to real life? Well, flashback to 2000, to the year 2000, Bush v. Gore, okay? Here is where Karl Rove was able to affect a, a vote suppression mechanism in Florida that suppressed the vote of the African-American population, suppressed the, took people off voting rolls, felons couldn't vote, just enough to affect the Electoral College in Florida. So when the time came to count certain votes and the Supreme Court stepped in, it was literally the Oliver Stone movie being replayed in real life, and that's how you got George Bush. Right. You just exercised the control in a tiny little way. Exactly. Well, that's what governments do. This is not any stroke of genius on behalf of anybody. (laughs) That's exactly what governments do. If there's a guy who is 
the centerpiece of um, developing um, high-quality plutonium for nuclear weapons. He killed a guy. Now you got to find somebody else. Right. Now, obviously, as I said, when we started the conversation, you know, you're intimately uh, connected with the UFO subject. Everyone sort of associates you with that uh, through the, the magazine, UFO magazine, and UFO hunters. What's your... What's your take on the current state of uh, the UFO field, and uh, what, what are your thoughts on this uh, citizens' hearing that happened in, in April that everyone was all in a lather about? Uh, I know. I mean, I thought that was. I thought it was. You know, I'm always fascinated by things like that because, um, on one level, it was a repeat of the citizens' hearing that was in 2007 when all these pilots, Oscar Santa Maria, Parviz Jafari, uh, John Callahan, and others. Uh, Chuck Halt, yeah. uh, Jim Penniston, they, uh, they all appeared before the International Press Corps. Not that there was a lot of International Press Corps there. Cause yeah, I remember there. that. I think it was, but, uh, um, I forget the name of the author. Uh, oh, Leslie Kane. Yeah, yeah, there you go, yeah. So, so yeah, you know, it was great testimony. I got to ask, well, we filmed it for UFO Hunters. I actually got to ask a question. James Fox's little tip of the hat put me in that um, movie. Okay. I mean, he might as well, because I'm the guy who got him the money to, to finish the movie in the first place. <laughs> the, the movie, I Know What I Saw, He, we were doing the Phoenix Lights episode together for UFO Hunter, so we're in the car. And Fox is, he's wailing, oh, I have no money, oh, I need $20,000, oh, what am I going to do? So I call up Jeff Saganski, who was the head of Sony, the head of CBS, call him up, because they know he's fascinated with UFOs. We had a few meetings with Saganski. So I say, Jeff, you know, it's a great movie here. I'll bet you can make a deal for the rights of this movie. You can help, um, you know, some P&A money for um, Fox to finish it. I plunk them together. Nobody says thank you, by the way. I plunk them together. He gives them the money, gets the movie to run on History Channel, and, and that was the movie I Know What I Saw, which, by the way, that was my title that I gave to Fox. We're sitting in London with these, um, with, um, I forget the names of the pilots, that had seen the UFOs over the English Channel. Mm-hmm. And so we're sitting there, right? Oh, who was a witness? Oh, uh, what's his face? Um, not Redfern, but Nick Pope yeah, was Nick a witness Pope. of this. Yeah. So we're sitting there, right? And I said, call the movie. Everybody in your movie starts out with, don't tell me what I saw. I know what I saw. So call it, make that the name of the movie, right? That right. became the name of the movie. So, uh, so the point is, that was 2007 when they had this conference. So flash forward to 2013, and this is kind of a replay of that, only the difference was you're doing this as a congressional, a quote-unquote congressional hearing because you've got retired people from Congress paid, by the way, uh, 20000 bucks apiece right. in Congress to assess the evidence that they're hearing. Well, right. it's the same evidence we've been hearing for, like, 20 years. Right, exactly. It was Fine. this time you're going to try and prove it to former members of Congress. Well, what are you going to prove it to? Mike Gravel? That's proof? Yeah. But it was an exercise in disclosure, and that's fine. And you know what? For the, for the inventiveness and entrepreneurship of Steve Bassett, congratulations. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think we're kind of in agreement on that. I feel like it was a good effort. It was, you know, an interesting undertaking but I'm not necessarily uh, sure that it really will accomplish the desired end goal of the of the right. event. There's nothing there that we don't know, right? I mean, there's no story that was told that we don't know. 
Okay? So in terms of new information, we already know what happened. But for them to expose members of Congress, which is actually what Bassett is after. Can we have con- even though James McDonald did have congressional hearings on right. this, right? I exactly. mean, we know McDonald conducted hearings. That's why McDonald was such a threat. That's why he had to be killed, and he was. Um, he committed suicide, but he was suicided. Let's just say. I mean, he did congressional hearings, right? So, great. We'd love to see this go to Congress, but it won't. Yeah, yeah. I'm skeptical of that, and I think. I was on another program uh, as a guest, and I kind of made the point that I think I think we need to move away from the National Press Club. I feel like that's just that 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 whole avenue has been done to death. I that's think right, and it's this like the idea that they've done there now. You're right, and this idea that somehow you need a Barack Obama to stand up and say UFOs are real. That's wonderful. That's great. I mean, he's revealing a whole lot. We have a drone war going on in the Middle East. We have a president who's basically got a kill list, who runs this by unelected officials to determine who lives, who dies, right? There's a secret court of the Star Chamber, the FISA court, the FISA court. It's like a court of the Star Chamber. You know, know, uh, uh, that person, you know, those rights can be trampled. I mean... I, I get it. I understand the war we're fighting. I understand all of it. But the idea that somehow that person is going to reveal that UFOs are, 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 are true subjects. And why would you need Obama to do that when Harry Truman already did it 60 years ago? Right. 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 1952, Harry Truman says, oh, well, these are UFOs. We all know what that is. Excuse me. There's your disclosure. Right. It goes back to kind of what I've been saying. It's it's less a political problem, and it's more of a public relations issue. Right. And you don't need Barack Obama to reveal it when Ronald Reagan did. You know, what did Ronald Reagan say? He, he's governor of California. He's flying back to um, Sacramento. He sees a UFO out over the desert. So he directs his pilot to follow the UFO over the Mojave Desert. The UFO disappears. So Reagan lands in Sacramento and says to the bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal, we saw a UFO over the Mojave Desert. I can, I'm going to tell Nancy. I mean, that literally is what he says. Yeah. But we forget about that. Then Reagan is driving down Pacific Coast Highway, down PCH, for a party, for a birthday party for Bill Holden. Remember Bill Holden in the movie Network? Okay, yeah. fine. So horse soldiers, Bill Holden played the doctor. Yeah. Um, so he's driving on to a party at Bill Holden's, right? And who's hosting the party? Lucille Ball. So um, he tells the story that he and Nancy see a UFO over PCH that goes out into the Pacific Ocean. He tells it to the assembled crowd. You don't see this turning up in the Wall Street Journal. You don't see this turning up in the New York Times. Oh, Ronald Reagan saw a UFO. Har, har, hardy, har, har. Yet, people are bending over backwards to extol what a great prophet Ronald Reagan was. The guy did UFO disclosure. Right, right. So like I said, I mean, it has to be... We have to get sort of a, we have to change the narrative in a way. We right. Can't, we can't be like, listen, we need you to tell us the truth. We need to be like, all right, the truth is pretty obvious. What are we going to do about it? You know? Exactly. Well, you know, so. Exactly. I've advocated for just better public relations and even, and, and, and to try and entice academia into taking a second look at this. You know, if you, if you could bring a fresh perspective to it instead of going to, Science and being like, we know these are aliens. If you say, we don't know what these are, maybe you get a better response from some sympathetic. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, this is, I mean, when you realize that, <clears throat> I mean, 
that's why what Kevin Randall and Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, um, I think Stan's involved in this, Stan Friedman, are all doing. It makes sense. Um, Kevin told me, he said on the radio, Kevin told me that he calls it the dream team, that what they're doing is they're starting from scratch to go over every piece of evidence they can regarding Roswell. Why Roswell? Okay? People would say, oh, Roswell, we're Roswell to death. I'm Roswelled out. Roswell this. Well, in, let's just say that you draw an analogy. Okay? Here's my analogy. Right? For good or for ill, here's my analogy. Okay. UFOs are like serial killers. How are they like serial killers? Well, everybody knows they're there, but nobody wants to talk about them, and they're hiding in plain sight. So if you use that analogy, you say, well, how do you investigate a serial murder crime? How do you investigate those things? Do you go chasing after this perpetrator and hope you'll catch him someday? No, there's a process to this thing. And there are two ways to do this process. This is the Ted Bundy case. Step one is you go back to the earliest case where you believe this person was committing that crime. Because in that early case is a lot of evidence that a more sophisticated serial killer, like Bundy and at the apex of his crimes, um, can now cover up. Right? Yeah. So you go to the early case. Exactly what Detective Bob Keppel in Seattle and the whole Ted Bundy task force did. Read my book, Riverman, about this case. Um, and in that case, they investigated it from literally from, from dust mites on the floor of the apartment where this first murder took place. And they found out that it wasn't like Ted Bundy and the victim didn't know each other. They damn well knew each other. In fact, she, Linda Healy, was in Ted Bundy's um, independent study psych class. A. B. She was roommates with Ted Bundy's cousin, so Bundy knew the apartment she was living in. C. They found that at the supermarket, the local supermarket, that when she was cashing her check at the register, Right behind her, because the checks are time-stamped, yeah. right behind her, Ted Bundy was casting his check. He was stalking her. <laughs> okay, so much for this magic invisible killer, right? Well, this is the same thing. Go back to the earliest cases, Foo Fighters, Roswell. Um, go back to those cases and then reanalyze that data because you will find your clues there. Other step in solving a serial murder case. And it's this. Again, it's how the Ted Bundy case was finally solved. Since nobody appears or disappears without a trace, doesn't happen. Since that's the case, if you analyze every single piece of data from a certain moment in time, you will get a clue just by the, prolifer uh, the proliferation of whose name turns up. So that's what they did in Seattle in the 1980s, right? They yeah. analyzed all these cases of missing and murdered women. And sure enough, the one, con one of the constants was there was this person called Ted. This person was driving a VW Beetle. This person was at all the places from which girls disappeared. They didn't know which Ted it was, but they knew there was a guy called Ted. And when they ran the name through uh, the motor vehicle database, they had to jury-rig a computer for this, they found out that it was Ted Bundy on from his license that was in all these places. So even before they caught him in Salt Lake City, 
they knew there was a Ted Bundy that was a person of interest in this case, applied the same techniques to UFOs. And that's what Kevin Randall and Stan and Tom Carey and Don Schmidt are all doing. They're going back, they're reanalyzing all the data from Roswell. Why? Because that was the first case, and the first case in which, in the first hours of the event, there was no cover-up. Right, exactly, because the further you get from that, it's the, the better the cover-up becomes. So you exactly. have to kind of... Exactly. You yeah. have, it's in the newspaper, in the headlines. There it is. You've got Brazel, you've got all the other witnesses. It took them time to clamp the cover down. And I think even if they, let's, even if they like unlock that, I think, I think we need like a multi-pronged sort of attack in a sense. Because no one's going to take, again, like I go back to the public relations things, even if they're like, listen, we saw this Roswell thing, we have the proof. It's like we still need to get the media on board, you know, we still have to get the mainstream on board, we still have to sort of convince the unconvincible. And I, I do think that's sort of a generational thing. The younger people are, the more open they are. It is. I mean, it's a generational thing the same way civil rights and uh, or rights for gay, lesbian, and transgender people. I mean, th this is all generational. But here's the other thing which is so fascinating to me, and it's this, that people butt their heads up against the media. Like somehow the media is like this huge paywall that, that if they glom onto the truth, then it's the truth. My theory is that you really don't have to convince, first of all, as one self-described CIA non-official cover officer told me, told me this flat out during the, when we were filming the show. He said, if you knew how many people in the mainstream media, and I mean liberals and progressives and people you see in the evening news, those faces are working willy-nilly for the CIA, you wouldn't believe it. I could drop, and he didn't drop any names. He said, I could drop names on you. You would be astonished at the people we work with who are listening posts for us, who deal with us. And if you ever, and if you think that somehow you're going to get a UFO story in the mainstream media without howls of laughter, forget about it. They are bought and they are paid for. Right. So the game's already. The game's, the game's over. The game's rigged. Yeah, yeah. So that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. So it's a challenge. It really is quite the challenge. Uh, you know, and and you can see that it's. I feel like there's a fatigue on on the field of UFO research in general from spinning its wheels all these years. That's right. I mean, at a certain point, you just overheat, and that's really what's happening. So my attitude is. Dig deep, dig down, and just mine the data, because the data is there, and you don't need um, MSNBC or CNN or whatever. You don't need them to confirm what you're doing. You keep mining that data. You keep making your arguments, and you seep it out, because what you then have is you do have a bunch of alternative media, and just get the data out there. Right, right. And I advocate also for like, uh, you know, Nate Silver, the guy who did the, who predicted the presidential election using statistics right, and all that. Right, the 538 blog, right. sure. You take, you know, you, you get your hands on MUFON's database or you get your hands on Peter Davenport's database and you synthesize all that in, in these, you know, in these statistical formulas and whatnot. And who knows, you may come up with something, uh, the, the revelatory that we hadn't really thought of yet, you know. The data is there, just like the data identified Ted Bundy all the way back 40 years ago. The data is there. Yeah. 
it's just just not being worked with in the correct way right now. You know, it's too much. Right. Like, oh, it's a light in the sky, and here's what this guy saw, and it's like, all right, well, what can we? No one seems to ask the question, right? What can we do with this now? You know, where can we take this information? What can we? Right, fix and that's one of the and that's one of the big issues. I mean, when we did UFO hunters, we needed kind of like a philosophy of approach. And so we use mine, which was, let's pretend this is a Sherlock Holmes case. How does Sherlock Holmes approach a case? Sherlock Holmes takes every obvious or conventional explanation. He runs it through a complete logical process. And if it doesn't stand up, he rejects it. And you keep on rejecting what doesn't stand up until you're left with what does stand up. No matter how crazy what stands up is, Pursue that in your investigation because that's probably the truth that will lead you down the path. Same thing with UFOs. So it's what we tried to do. But but even were you to come up with a UFO, a lot of people would say, so what? Who cares? Well, that's a, that's the sticking point, too, of, of the UFO field. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's divided on on its ultimate goal in a sense. There's the people that want to figure it out, and then there's the people that just want to be told the answer. That's right. And remember, for most people, even though they want to say, oh, UFOs are real, oh, wow, cool, everything else. For most people, the idea of a UFO presents an existential threat to their logic. Right. Not to their lives, but to their logic. My view of the world is challenged existentially by the existence of another form of intelligent life that's dealing with us. That's why you're going to get a basic rejection from that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's a deep psychological issue at work there where it's like right. the fear of the unknown and the fear of humans. They, you know, people, they're comfortable being at the top of the food chain. They don't need to be worried about, you know, there's already people who are, like, terrified of sharks and crazy stuff that's not going to really ever get you. And right. So, so we're talking about, you know, technologically advanced humanoids, you know, that can come here and, and are <laughs> far more intelligent than sharks, then I can only Worse. imagine the fear that people will Worse. Technologically, uh, technologically far advanced humanoids who might well have started life on planet Earth. So everything you thought about when you were growing up as a kid in Sunday school, throw it out. Because this is a whole new theory. Reinterpret the Bible as a, as kind of an existential, as, as, um, how human beings came to planet Earth, our DNA was manipulated, how we advanced, and how they're tinkering with us today. And if you don't think that's an existential threat to life on planet Earth, to the logic and the raison d'etre for being a human being, then you're still going to beat your head against a wall. Exactly. Why do you think, uh, you know, it's. I've talked about this with other people in the past. Uh, it's be interested to get your perspective on it. Why do you think? You know, we. It seems like every decade or so we have a few signature cases. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you know, in the last maybe fifteen years, we've got. It, there's been a dearth of signature cases, with the exception of O'Hare and Stephenville. Well, there's O'Hare, there's Stephenville. You're right about that. But uh, and we're covering this case in in this particular issue of UFO Magazine, the one that's out now. It's online. Um, and folks can get it's free, 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 free. So awesome. same price as everything else. Free magazine. Go online. Go get it. Nancy put it up. It's done. In there is this article by a guy called Foo Fighter. Right. That's his. That's his handle. Mm-hmm. This guy was in New York 
Or remember the, um, what's his face, the Fulham story of, oh, the, the, um, <clears throat> these people who were in contact with extraterrestrials predicted there would be a big UFO event in New York City a few years ago in October. Oh, yeah. And sure right. enough, on that day, right, and it was kind of dismissed by the media. I was always struck by the fact that there's supposedly these UFOs up in the sky, right, hovering over 8th, um, <clears throat> 8th Avenue and 23rd Street, and all the television cameras are pointing at the ground and pointing at people. Morons, point the cameras up. That's where the UFOs are. You think that was an accident? No, it wasn't. So um, he took photos of this, and he told his story. And that's in this issue of UFO Magazine, along with a fabulous article by Kevin Randall about the citizens' hearing we talked about. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not so much that there aren't... So- there aren't really good cases anymore. Maybe it's that there's so many cases that it's hard to really find the ones that are actually the ones we should be looking at. It's that we've created, it's not just a 24-hour news cycle, we've created this, this huge digital chamber around us with television, with radio, with the Internet. We've created that, and that's bombarding us with news. What we don't have as discriminating consumers of information are the right kinds of filters to be able to prioritize the news we're getting. That's why um, certain kinds of news organizations can boost news. And so that's why the story of the NSA revelations is so big. Everybody suspected it, but now it's supposedly big, Okay. Um, the same thing could happen with UFOs, but the fact is this, like the IRS scandal, this, like one of the other scandals, will go away because people really are bombarded with news, Benghazi, right? It'll go away. Right. It's like everything else. So it's not so much that we don't have the news. It's that you're kind of like, um, how can I put it? It's like you have your window for siphoning news doesn't work. It's either, it's probably just too far open. So everything gets in. So you have no discriminators for the news. So as a result, you're told what to get exercised about. Yeah, and you're in a constant state of like the now. So right, exactly. there's no analysis or anything like that. No, so when somebody says it's time to deal with UFOs and that person, you know, is a Brian Williams, let's say, right? Fine. Now you deal with UFOs, because Brian Williams says deal with UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be a strange day if it ever comes. But Exactly. So I, I'm skeptical, uh, having been in this so long. But, right. You know. It's not as simple as like a Bigfoot type thing, where they're like, oh, there's another animal we don't know about. This is like, oh, no, the whole world's going to have to change now, and I don't know if the world can handle changing. Right. And And, and when you've got aliens as fictional creatures... UFOs in um, shoot 'em up movies and Yetis in television commercials for Buffalo Wing Wheat Thins. Who's going to believe it? That's right. Yeah. Well, it's a, that you raise an interesting point there too. Yeah, that it's like I remember even I've been in this about a decade. I've been sort of looking at all this, and I've been sort of a you know a content provider, let's say, for about eight or nine years. And it's the, the remarkable sea change of all this has been pretty. You know, revelatory to see that. I mean, it's it's certainly not. Uh, you know, sho- it's still shoved off to the side, but it, it is, it's given a certain cachet now. But I also think that 
that goes to what we've talked about already, where it's like, you know, there's like 500 channels. There's just a just a need for programming on all fronts. Mm-hmm. So the paranormal fits as much of a niche as as cooking and all these other uh, you know forms of programming in a sense. So You're exactly it, right. You know, a rising tide lifts all ships. So mm-hmm. UFOs and and Bigfoot and all that stuff and ghosts they, they've risen up. It's like it's like nerd culture, you know. It's like comic it books is. and all that. Was but like, I'll tell you something from the front from the front line of reality television, if you walk into, I mean, a lot of the reality channels, and I talk to them all the time, are UFO'd out. Yeah. Okay? Um, I've got a great idea for a show on UFOs, a great idea for a show on extraterrestrial visitations, on abductions, on this, on that, you name it. And it's like, oh, we already know about this stuff. It's been on the air forever. And that's one of the things. So on the one hand, you're saying we, we really can't break through this um, surface tension of the media. And on the other hand, on the other hand, everybody knows about it. Right, right. Because it's like you said, they, you know, like the thing in, in April was a rehash of the thing in 2006. It's the same problem facing. It's the same program. stories. It was the same stories that we heard in 2000 and um, it was 2007. It was the same exact stories. Right. There was no difference. So, I mean, and then the thing with the humanoid creature that Stephen Greer, the serious movie and stuff like that, fine, I get it. It was a human being. I don't know, you know, it was, had human DNA, whatever it was. Who knows what it was? The, the thing is that when the time came to have the disclosure conference, when the time came to have the citizens hearing, you had people like Rachel Maddow, who's on television right now, Pounding the table about this conspiracy, laughing at the tin hat conspirators. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the, 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 yeah. Well, the media coverage was either that was either mocking or it was just a rehash of press releases of, of, of you know these people are in Washington. They're going to have this event. It's going to be about UFOs. You know, right. with no judgment on it, uh, either positive or negative, to the point where it's just a bland rehash of a, of a press release. Right, and then you've got people like the Bill Nyes of the world or whoever who pop up and just paint everything with this one brush, they're all crazy. Right, Nichols, Nye, yeah. um, favorites in the media um, who basically, ah, uh, and these guys are like, and they're jokes, right? I mean, these guys are absolute jokes. When you drill them down to a case, they will throw back in your face the same old tired arguments, right? <clears throat> so you, uh, you take photos like the Trent photos uh, from, the, from, um, from McMinnville, right, that Bruce Maccabee analyzed and reanalyzed and analyzed again. And you look at the history of those photos, like the Rex Heflin photos uh, a decade later. You look at the history of those things, and you find out there's really something to them, even if... You can't immediately believe that um, Paul Trent photographed the UFO. What the government did to debunk the photos tells you that something is there that they didn't want you to know, right? When we analyzed the Rex Heflin photos, which is finally what James McDonald um, said he believed in, um, the Rex Heflin photos from 1965, when we analyzed those photos, again, we did what 
Kevin Randall's dream team is doing. You go back to the very beginning and you reanalyze that case. So we then analyze the metrics of the United States government debunking of those photos. Remember, the government said that based on their analysis of the photos, and they gave all the parameters of that analysis, right? Based on that analysis, Rex Heflin, because the um, object he was seeing was the wrong size against the background, it was a hoax. So we used, I think it was the Navy, um, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we used the Navy's own metrics, their own parameters for how they built that argument that the photo of this, I call it a flying hubcap, that this photo was a doctored photo, was hoaxed, we used it. Then we laid the Navy parameters on the actual digital image of the photo itself. Yeah. And as we faded from one to the other, we could see that what the Navy said was true, that was the hoax. Huh. That the numbers didn't match up. That for the Navy to have been right, it would have had to have been something else entirely on the screen. That it was that they were wrong and the Heflin photo was right. So, I mean, that's the kind of science that I love to see. Right, exactly. We need more of that and less, uh, <laughs> you know, less going to the National Press Club and saying, give us the answer, give us the answer, because then, you know, you got you to gotta show your work. That's kind of right. like, you know, like... The answer like, is there is, cool. yeah, the answer is there is no answer. That's the answer. Exactly. Exactly. Think about how much more seriously we'd be taken uh, as a field if, if instead of saying, you know, we want the answer, if we were like, hey, here's the here's the answer. You know, so exactly, you got to change the paradigm here on this. Exactly, all, all you know is there are things that you can't explain, and you run up against this wall of unknowing. Mm -hmm. And to get around or through this wall of unknowing, what you've got to say over and over again is what you know about this event. So, what we know about JL sixteen twenty eight, for example, is that James Callahan had all the tapes and all the documentation and all the substantiation for what happened in that encounter between whatever the object was and that Japanese Airlines flight, right? right. Mm -hmm. Had the radar, had the uh, information from Ellendorf, had the military perspective. Who walks into that presentation? The CIA. They not only take all the material out of Callahan's hands, but say this meeting never happened and walk out. <laughs> that tells you a lot about how the government views that JAL 1628 case. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Um, in the Ed Walters Bentwaters case, Bruce Maccabee makes this point. Um, all you know is that after Ed Walters left the house in Gulf Breeze, they found a wooden model of a flying saucer up above the garage. Oh, that proves he was hoaxing it. Okay? Now you analyze that, right? After Ed Walters sells the house, this air conditioning guy turns up, this guy out of nowhere, no ID, just says, I'm from the air conditioning company. He says to the new owners, I'm here to check on your vents. Right? <laughs> yeah. He goes in the house. They don't know what he's doing. Walks out. Events are okay. A couple of days later, a reporter shows up. Again, no idea. 
Hi, I'm investigating. Did you know your guy who bought the house from him said he saw a UFO at this house? Oh, well, let me just look. Can I look around the house? Oh, look what I found. I found a model of a UFO. Strange. Yeah. And Walter yeah. said he never built the model. Uh, the couple never saw the model until the reporter said it was there. Suddenly, there's a planted UFO. Why would somebody go to that length to do that? but that they're covering up something. Exactly. And I could run you through the Paul Trent photos and the Rex Heflin photos. It's the same thing. Yeah, well, we're dealing with some uh, interesting forces at work here, that's for sure. Right. So, I mean, one thing that I would do, in fact, I'm doing it now, by the way, in, in the second, U, the, the book with the UFO Hunters, the um, UFO Hunters book one comes out in September. It's the television tie-in to the first, you're the series. Okay. The next book that I'm working on now is UFO Hunters book two. About the second, I'm going to try to get some episodes in the third um, season in there as well. But one of the things that I'm focusing on in this book, as opposed to the first book, it's not an OG, oh, wow, look what we found. It's I'm focusing on things the government does or things that are done to debunk it and how the things that are done to debunk these stories are more outrageous than the stories themselves. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, you, you kind of jumped the gun here on me in a good way. It's, uh, I, was, I was heading towards the end here. What's next for you? You've got the UFO Hunter book one coming out in well, September. Well, I've, I've got next month, July, mm -hmm. I've got a book coming out called Wounded Minds. And Wounded Minds is a serious book about PTSD, mental health, and combat veterans in the military. And it's basically saying that what the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs has done is for all their talk about the problems of PTSD since, well, actually since World War I, but really um, in, in modern times since Vietnam, they've basically kind of missed the boat on this. They, they don't understand it. When you deploy soldiers, especially National Guard soldiers, three and four times to the Middle East. There's no end point. These wars go on forever because of that. Yeah. You have these people who, who, who are seeing so much, and, and what are they seeing? Are they seeing landing at Normandy Beach? Are they seeing landing at Anzio? No. What are they seeing? What they're seeing is driving along a road, and the road explodes. Going into a village that's supposed to be friendly, and there's the Afghan National Army, and they're killing you and your buddies. What they're seeing is having to put together the remains of troops at forward operating bases who've been blown apart by a truck that drives onto the base and explodes. They're seeing this over and over again. And it's the multiple hit theory of post-traumatic stress disorder. That reduces your resiliency, so now suddenly you're in a parking lot outside of Walmart, and there's noise and running around, and you panic. Why? Because those are the kinds of things you've seen in Afghanistan and, and Iraq over and over again. So that's that book. And then what the Army did, by the way, what the Army did is astounding. At Madigan Army Hospital, which is at Joint Base Fort Lewis-McChord up in Tacoma, what they did was they had a rogue unit in the psychiatric um, department there, yeah. and they were taking legitimate psychiatric diagnoses of PTSD and they were, on their own, reversing the diagnoses. 
so that soldiers coming in to try to get some kind of medical disability were told, get out in the streets, go to a homeless shelter, stay out of jail, don't take drugs, goodbye, get out. Thanks for your service, by the way. Oh, Jesus. That's what the army was doing. And that was the subject or the object of a Senate hearing with Senator Patty, uh, Patty Murray for up in the um, state of Washington, questioning this uh, General Hiroho, um, um, who was the Army Surgeon General, on why this was going on. Okay, that's that book. In uh, September, UFO Hunters Book One comes out, and then later on in the year, um, another book is coming out called The Hearts of Darkness. And that's a really ambitious book. Again, Hearts of Darkness is more true crime yeah. and psychology than anything else. Hearts of Darkness is saying that we are in the midst of a phenomenal epidemic. I and mean, we, we know this, but I'm laying out the reasons. We're in the midst of this phenomenal epidemic of suicides and mass murder. We are. You yeah. just have to go back from Charles Whitman in the Texas Tower in 1966, who, by the way, was suffering from a brain tumor that was altering his behavior, and he could not convince one doctor that he was sick until he finally committed those crimes, was shot by the police, they did an autopsy, and that's when they found he had a brain tumor. So what we're saying is that there is an epidemic of all kinds of mental illness that's afflicting these generations of children. It's fed by a whole bunch of things, the media, digital wargaming, things like that, violence. It's fed by a lot, but, but, but it's also the result of human evolution socially from a multi-generational family, say circa 1915, to, in some cases, a single-generation family, kids living on their own, kids going through serial foster homes circa 2013. Right. That type of evolution, with no attempt made to recognize it, is, is partly the turbulence you're seeing in that generation, that turbulence you're seeing, that's on the edges is resulting in this kind of, um, I call it apocalyptic violence. That book is coming out toward the end of the year. Awesome. So it sounds like you've got some good stuff cooking. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yep. Well, on that note, uh, we're right up against the clock here, and you've given us an extra 20 minutes, and I really appreciate it. Uh, we my talk, pleasure. I'm telling you, we could probably talk for another two hours, and I wouldn't even notice, but uh, we both have <laughs> things to do. Exactly. Um, I can't thank you enough, Bill. The book, Dr. Feelgood, outstanding. It is just tremendous stuff and just totally compelling, and, and the perfect book kind of for the summertime, you know, folks kind of lounging around. Pick it up, read it, and you will be really captivated by it, folks. It is fantastic. And, and like I said, Bill, thank you once again for coming on the show, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Thanks, Tim. Looking forward to it. That does it for the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Bill Burns for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You can find out more from him at www.ufomag.com. You can tune in to the podcast, which he hosts with his wife, Nancy Burns, at futuretheater.com. And, of course, you definitely want to go out and get your hands on Dr. Feelgood, because we only scratched the surface on this amazing book, so be sure to check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, but as is the case when we have a huge delay between episodes... We are going to askew listener feedback here this week. 
I will try to do a monstrous installment of listener feedback on the season finale, kind of break tradition a little bit since we've been skipping listener feedback quite a bit here at the end of the show as we get close to closing out the season. I do want to give you all a little update on what's going on here because it's been a month since you've heard from me. It's kind of weird and uh, there's been delays just continuously here as we close out the season. Um, in the grand scheme of things, I guess uh, the best way to put it is I am just totally burned out. Uh, I've never experienced this kind of burnout with the program. It usually happens as we get close to the end of the season, but this year, this season has just left me completely frazzled. I am just completely worn out. And then I've been just hit on all sides by a variety of uh, developments, let's say, positive and negative. Uh, A lot more work from my various side gigs where I actually make money. So I've had to kind of put BOA on the back burner while I try and make a living. Uh, Some good developments in my personal life which uh, I may explore sometime down the line, but we'll just leave it at that here. But certainly something where, uh, additionally, I'd had to put BOA on the back burner because I've had some exciting things going on in my life. And uh, beyond that, also, my mom had reconstructive knee surgery uh, two weeks ago, and that took a huge chunk of time out of my schedule as I've been helping her recover from that surgery. So it's just been an absolutely crazy summer so far. Some good stuff, some bad stuff, and I've just had to really kind of put BOA, as I keep saying, on the back burner while I tend to uh, the B part of BOA, which is, of course, banal, and that's uh, my life. So that's really what's been going on here. Um... We're going to have the season finale coming at you sooner than later. It's not going to take a month. Uh, The downside on that is that it's going to be shorter than your average BOA episode. It's going to be about an hour and 15 minutes long interview. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get going here, closing out the program. But uh, I could search around and try and find the ideal guest to sort of lock in and uh, complete a two-hour season finale, but at this point, I just really want to close the book on season seven. It's uh, been going on a bit too long now, and I am ready to start the pre-planning for season eight and also get into this exciting new venture, which I'm about to tell you about. So that's the deal, I guess you'd say. I'm kind of rambling a lot here, but I think I've covered pretty much all the bases. Um, You know, tremendously burned out, lots of side work that's keeping me busy, very positive developments in my personal life, and uh, reconstructive knee surgery for mom. So that's that's the many issues that have been going on here at BOA HQ. Not to mention... Just an intense summer of uh, heat and humidity and the kind of stuff that just makes you not want to even sit at the computer for more than five minutes. Do not fret, my friends. There's going to be a season eight. I've already got a whole bunch of guests lined up. I really want to get started on that. And I think really kind of my mind has just sort of mentally closed the book here on season seven already, uh, prematurely. And for that, I apologize. But... Another part of it is uh, that maybe some folks have picked up over the years. 
as I go longer between episodes, I feel terrible, uh, and I start to really stress myself out, which isn't good for me at all, and that's been going on a lot here at the end of the season as well. It's probably contributed quite a bit to the burnout, um, because I keep trying to raise the bar here with this program, and I keep trying to deliver better and better episodes and more and more compelling conversations, and... When I can't get them out to folks in a timely fashion, I just start to beat myself up over it, and I get very stressed, and it's just not good for me. So, at the end of the day, we're going to push out the season finale, hopefully for you, in the next 10 days or so. But, the good news is, that will not be the last you hear from me for an extended period of time. Traditionally, we roll out the season finale, and then you don't hear from me for about two, three months as I reboot and uh, revive myself. However, this time around, that is not going to be the case. Because upon the release of the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7, I will have exciting news for you about a date that you'll need to look forward to, because that will be the premiere of Banal of America Audio Live. That's right, we're going to take the program in a little bit different direction, at the very least uh, during the interim period here between seasons. And we're going to start presenting some live programming for the BOA Audio listeners. I've been really wanting to do this for a very long time, since, you know, last fall, but haven't really had the chance to get around to do it. It's kind of hard to sort of balance the two programs at once. And... Really, like around the beginning of the summer, I've been looking forward to doing this live program for a while. I kind of made the decision at the beginning of the summer that once we concluded BOA Audio Season 7, I was going to start doing some live programming while I also put together Season 8. And truth be told, I started to get more and more excited about doing these live programs that my mind really was becoming more occupied with that. And that's really another reason why I want to hurry up and get Season 7 concluded so we can really dig into the live format. I'm just really excited about the potential and the things we can do in a live setting with BOA Audio. So I don't want to tell you a premiere date just yet, but it's not going to be far from the season finale posting date. I'm talking maybe a week, 10 days at the most, and... It's probably not going to be a weekly program. It may be every 10 days. It may be every two weeks, but it certainly won't be once a month. It's definitely going to be more frequent than the BOA audio episodes you've been hearing over the last two months. So that's kind of the big news. There's a lot going on here, folks. There's a lot going on. Don't stress out. BOA audio is not going anywhere, my friends. I have got Some awesome guests lined up, not just for Season 8, but also for the live program. I've got some awesome ideas for the live program that I'm just dying to really get going on. So, the best thing I can tell you right now is stay tuned. We're going to have information posted at Banal of America as soon as we decide on the premiere date for BOA Audio Live. So, check there. Additionally, stay tuned to Banal of America on Facebook. That is where I will have the announcement about the premiere date and time for BOA Audio Live. And, of course, I should mention, 
that even if you can't hear us on BOA Audio Live, the programs will be archived in the traditional manner at Benal of America and on our podcast feed. So you're not going to have to wait too long to hear the programs as they get rolling out. Speaking of the Banal of America page on Facebook, we have passed 1,000 likes. We've crossed the threshold, folks. We've not only passed it, we've taken quite a few little baby steps over it. We're now at 1,010 likes. So let me now officially congratulate and provide the shout-out to our 1,000th like. His name is Rick Brandon. He probably has no idea that he was our thousandth like, but he has achieved historic status here by becoming our one thousandth like. I'll also give a shout out to Bob Dion, who is our nine 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 like, Rachel Faulkner, our nine nine eight like, Andrew May, missed it by a smidge. He was number one thousand one, and Greg Fafard was number one thousand two. So congrats to those folks who uh, liked us around the historic number 1,000. With all that said, let me give you the rundown on how to get in touch with me if you want to make guest suggestions for Season 8 or for the live program. I'm going to focus really at the very beginning on bringing back some BOA favorites to the live program. So folks you've already heard on the show who are BOA regulars will be a part of the initial episodes of BOA Live then we'll probably get cooking with some fresh new guests in the live format. Nonetheless, guest suggestions, here's how you can send them to me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. You can head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. E.com. That's BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we have discussions on the world of pop culture, as well as esoterica. Fantastic group of folks there, always having fun conversations. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profiles. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And just because you might have missed the 1,000th like at Ben All of America on Facebook does not mean that you cannot like us nonetheless. So feel free to punch in Ben All of America into the Facebook search page. That'll bring up the page. And if you haven't liked us yet, go for it, folks. It would be great to have you as part of the BOA community on Facebook. Now, let me take a moment here and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru Jeremy Boston. It's not just BOA audio that has grown static, folks. The development of BOA 2.0 has the development of BOA 3.0 has also grown rather static. That is entirely my fault. I have got to get back in touch with Ray Weigel. I feel like a total heel at the moment because he's waiting on me to make some final approvals on various aspects of BOA 3.0. So hopefully 
we can launch BOA 3.0 to coincide with either the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7 or the premiere of BOA Live. Stay tuned to Banal of America. We will have something cooking for you in the not-too-distant future. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to help out the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. You can make a donation via PayPal. There's a button right there at Banal of America. Or you can mail a snail mail donation to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and you can find the complete address at banalofamerica.com, right under the PayPal button. As always, it bears repeating, my friends, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio Season 7, as if you did not need me to tell you again, it is the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7, and in keeping with our tradition, our guest is a historic figure in the field of UFO research and paranormalia. We're going to be featuring a compelling conversation with legendary UFO abductee Travis Walton. This is a really fascinating conversation, folks, and one that really had me stretching in a lot of ways, because Travis Walden has done many interviews in the past, and I really want to go into this asking him questions that maybe, hopefully, he had never been asked before. I think that was definitely a mission accomplished in a lot of ways. I tried to probe the story from angles that maybe it hasn't been explored before yet, and we get into a whole bunch of stuff. We just really wring this story out and dig into it from a myriad of angles. I can't even begin to tell you all the different aspects of Travis's story, which we discussed during the program. I can tell you, I think I came into it with maybe 15 questions listed and probably closed the conversation having asked over 20, maybe 21, 22 questions. So we covered tons of stuff. And I think folks are really going to enjoy this one. It is a fascinating conversation and one that when I hung up the phone, I said to myself, there is the season finale. I felt like I really didn't need to do much more than that. I know it may be a bit disappointing to some folks. The episode's going to be less than your average length for a BOA audio episode. But having looked back on the history of the program, it's kind of frightening in a sense. Uh, the very first season, maybe the second season, third season, a lot of the episodes were just an hour long. Then they became 90 minutes long. Then they grew to two hours long, and now some of them are clocking in at three hours plus, and that, I think, contributes a lot to this burnout effect, which I've been talking about here on the program. I could have chased down a second guest to fill out the season finale, but I really didn't want to pad out the final episode of the season with a guest that I would not consider in keeping with the historic significance 
that we try to adhere to in the season finale. So, much like the very first season finale, which featured notorious UFO hacker Gary McKinnon, this season finale will also clock in probably at about 90 minutes, all told, with the various bells and whistles. Nonetheless, I think this is a fantastic conversation and certainly worthy of the season finale status here on BOA Audio. Legendary, historic UFO abductee Travis Walton comes to BOA Audio for an in-depth exploration of his abduction experience on the season finale of BOA Audio Season 7. And on that note, we close the book here on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Bill Burns. Folks, definitely go out and pick up Dr. Feelgood. It is fantastic. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners. I've been getting your emails. I've been getting your Facebook posts. I'm doing all right. Everything's fine. And the future looks brighter than ever, my friends. So stay tuned, because it is going to be a wild ride. Thank you once again for your enduring support of the program, and of course, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening, and signing off.